All right, shalom and welcome everybody to the Unexpected Cosmology uh, classes in session. So let's pray. Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, there is none beside you. Deuteronomy 30 tells us that in the later days, the children of Yashorel will begin to open their eyes, to remember your name, to be obedient to your ancient ways again. We know we are uh, not in the land, which tells us our forefathers rebelled against you, and we ourselves have sinned. Remember us, uh, hear our prayers as they ascend to heaven. All over the earth, your sons and daughters, the set apart, cry out at the injustices and the lies heaped upon us. You promise to be a gracious Elohim in this hour, to turn us from our captivity and gather us from where we've been scattered in the furthest corners of the earth. Uh, Teach us obedience, repentance, and be gracious upon us as we slip up and fall and learn the set-apart ways of this ancient path. Uh, We pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Yahushua HaMashiach, and Ruach HaKodesh. Amen. Guys, that was epic. All right. (laughs) So (laughs) this last weekend was also very epic. Uh, The Parable of the Vineyard hosted its second annual, what I hope to be an annual, baptismal event, a nationwide event. And there were probably, I don't know, uh, 10 or 15 locations across North America where people were baptizing here at the Unexpected Cosmology, uh, which... um, partnered up with Parable of the Vineyard. We had Dave baptizing up in New Hampshire. We had Polly baptizing in Savannah, Georgia. We had uh, Hank in Seattle. And then we had Rob, Michael, and I baptizing in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. And starting out tonight, I was hoping to open this up and just get a report and see how things went. If anybody would like to share how the baptism went this weekend for you guys, uh, please jump in. Yeah, I'll go ahead and go first if it's okay. Can you hear me? Do it. Yep. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, we went to Butterbean Beach, which is a, a tidal river, and it was at high tide, and it was about solar noon. And uh, I was just like, wow, this is just like so awesome. You know, <laughs> Yeshua, you're just giving me all these like, neat little coincidences to let me know that this is, this is okay for me to do this. Because I, I was in the ministry in the 90s and then left and then came back slowly, um, knowing much more than I did then. Uh, so we had um, about 40 people were going to come. Two families decided that they couldn't because of reasons. And uh, we had 26, 27 show up. And we baptized 21. Um, and then they baptized me at the end there. Must be Brent and a couple of others. Eric was there. Um, but, yeah, it was it was, it was was glorious. Um, and, of course, if you've seen the prayer requests that uh, people are working on, uh, Katie and whatnot, and Noel, um, Hank, uh, not Hank, but uh, Herb um, was there. Uh, he was a Pentecostal preacher for about, he was an evangelist for 30 years. 
and um, came to know uh, more and then wanted to be rebaptized in the right name. Um, and he's like, well, I have to be baptized now because I might be dead on Thursday. I was like, oh, goodness. So I started crying. That was like the first guy that I met. Uh, and so I said, well, we're going to do it, man. So uh, he's alive right now. He's in recovery, post-op for heart surgery, stents and all sorts of stuff going on. But uh, it was great. And uh, we had very a lot of onlookers because it was a public beach. And they were congratulatory. I invited a lot of them to come. But they were like, nah. I was like, it's okay. We'll be here next month. So we're going to do it again on 9-11, um, kind of a mid-festival thing and uh, a lot of these people just want to come and, and hang out so I'm like well might as well start a little assembly here in Savannah so kind of it was a neat little uh, what do you call it church plant back in the day that's what I'd call it but uh, yeah it's just the, the local ecclesia um, here in Savannah just hanging out and getting wet and Polly you had told me that uh, this had encouraged you to start meeting regularly is that correct is that what you're going to be doing now uh yes sir uh we will be meeting once a month to start with the second saturday um we don't have a location yet but for now we're going to meet at the beach we are in the south so it won't be very hard to do so um we might do something december and january inside but uh we'll just keep meeting at the beach and keep inviting the public to be baptized if they want and hanging out and playing instruments and eating food and being a witness Awesome. So how did it go for you, uh, Hank? Hey, everyone. Yeah, Seattle. Well, we had our destination set. And then because of the heat wave, uh, the algae got out of hand. So the county closed down our water hole. So it was a mad scramble the day before, the evening before. And I was so thankful that I went down and double checked. <laughs> uh, but we found a location. Out of, out of 18 email inquiries, six people, including myself, showed up and we all got baptized. Um, we briefly had three of us in Discord. Um, um, Let's see. Uh, we all got baptized. We we too had uh, onlookers who cheered, and we asked them too if they wanted to participate, but they were reluctant. And and a lot of people were respectful. It it was it was truly wonderful. Uh, 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 and you know we were just very thankful that uh, that Adam had sent out. You know, guidelines for us to to walk through and it was a beautiful moment and it was just the six of us so it was very intimate too and and one of the participants brought her mother and she got baptized and then afterwards we just sat and fellowshiped you know with no restrictions no time limit no need to get out and and us too thank you noel and polly for for saying uh Everyone in the group felt like they were, I don't know, to put it nicely, let down by what was available as far as a Torah community here in the Northwest. So just today, in fact, I got all of my, all of the folks, plus two more, I believe, in addition up in, uh, up north of here. Um, 
just today. And so we're already going to be growing uh, the community. And so far, we've got just scheduled, like, meeting once a month because everyone, even though we're within Washington State, we're, we're scattered a bit with, like, 45-minute travel time and such. So for right now, it's going to be once a month, okay? And, and just like Polly had said, and I'm glad that he spoke up, was because uh, we're going to need an indoor <laughs> location. Uh, that's in a general area where we're all located. Ah, it's great. Hey, uh, I'm, hey, I'm super excited. Awesome, Hank. Hey, I wanted to interject real quick. Um, you know, we could have had a hundred people, a thousand people, twenty people, fifty people, but no matter the no matter what the numbers were, Hank had a hundred percent attendance and a hundred percent baptized. I just want to say, wow, that's awesome. Good job, man. I love you so much. You're awesome. Dave, how did it go on your end of this flat, motionless plane? Oh, it was, it was great. Uh, <laughs> we started off, I had a lot of inquiries. And when all was said and done, we had two show up to be baptized. But the two were, one of them was actually a long time coming. He was, he meant to be baptized the year before. And uh, I reached out to him. I said, hey, man, you know, it's been a whole year and we didn't get to touch base last year. What do you think? And he was like, oh, I'm definitely going to be there. He was really excited. And then another guy uh, ended up coming up from Connecticut, which is about three and a half hours away. And uh, then there was another Torah guy who I invited. I found him on the 119 uh fellowship finder and i was like hey man we're doing a baptism if you want to come cheer people on it'd be great and he showed up he brought a guitar and he was singing in the background while we baptized and uh it was kind of funny we i baptized the first guy i thought he was going to be the only one there we all went up to the house and started eating and then i get a call from this guy jordan and he was like hey you guys still doing the baptism today it was wicked late. So we all jumped in the golf cart and drove down to the beach. And and then uh, we baptized him just before a storm hit. And then we came back up to the house. And we sat around fellowshipping for five hours. It, even more, the, the last guy, Bob, uh, stuck around even longer. But we, too, decided we're going to meet monthly. So Jordan, Jordan, actually, if you guys want to keep him in your prayers, his daughter um, has some sort of nerve disorder where she just can't walk. They told him she was only going to live in, until about three years old. She's three and a half now. Um, but Jordan and his wife are going to try and make the trek once a month. Um, and, Praise y'all. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm excited. All right. It breaks my heart just hearing somebody like that have a child that, you know, has nerve problems and can't walk. Yeah. He's getting real nervous, you know, with everything going on, too, because they, they rely heavily on the medical system just for a lot of the support they get. And so he's just, you know, any prayers he can get, he's asking for. So. 
All right, Rob and Michael, anyone wants to chime in how it went here in the Tampa area? Sure, I'll uh, start anything I miss. Uh, Mike can uh, definitely point out. We had we secured a pavilion there, right there on the spring-fed lake. And uh, and around the lake, it was like a beach, all sandy beach and everything. So it was very enjoyable and nice, nice area uh, that we had. And we had about uh, 50 people show up and i think it was around close to 30 that were being baptized 25 30 uh that were there uh, and correct me if i'm wrong and we had uh many people uh it, that that arrive have no fellowships they're they're more or less come to this understanding and 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 truth from you know by themselves at home so yah is calling people out there and they're waking up and I, I hope events like this and, and others can connect people together to have uh, connections and fellowships with each other. And and then another we had we had a gentleman that uh, had a heart had a heart attack earlier in the week the prior earlier in the week, and he wanted to be baptized. And he got they actually got in his car and started driving, and he was he was. Uh, uh, having breathing issues. So his wife was like, yep, let's, let's go back. So they, they went back and reached out uh, if we could uh, do anything with the baptism. So uh, Mike and I drove over to their house on Sunday right before noon and fellowship with him and uh, baptized him. So it was, it was wonderful. So anything I missed, feel free to chime in, Mike. Oh, not too much, but um, I just wanted to say that, you know, Adam's ministry is really powerful because like, like Rob was saying that everybody was alone, like 90% had no fellowships. Um, so we, we tried to play matchmaker, like most of them were from the Orlando area. So I was kind of like grouping them together. Um, I would say there's like six from our Tampa area. So we kind of, kind of snagged those to try to, you know, get them plugged into our fellowship and then a few in, jacksonville so i just wanted to say that you know adams it's it's pretty it's pretty big for a lot of people you know they don't have that they're not actually seeking out and so he's fulfilling a need and i think that's it yeah it was a great time well i will add to that that we were we were i guess I don't know if concerned is the right word we saw a tropical storm charging in across the gulf and we were looking at the weather report and we're like, man, it might be windy, rainy, uh, lightning all day. This could be really bad for business. Now, here in Florida, and if anyone is used to the muggy weather in the south, whether you're in uh, the Carolinas or Florida or um, wherever else, like it, every day is the two o'clock apocalypse. It rolls in every single day, these black clouds, the lightning, the wind, and then it's gone within 20 minutes to an hour. No big deal. But I was looking at this and going, man, this could just be really bad. And I asked everybody in my group to pray. And it was, it was truly miraculous to see how Yah was looking out for us. And we we kept right on schedule. We had a big feast at twelve o'clock. Everyone brought food. Um, I gave my uh, uh, like I guess you could call it a sermon. I gave a, a prepared notes. I gave a thirty-five to forty-minute sermon starting at one thirty. Uh, by two o five, we went down there and baptized. We all finished. We we're on the beach, and 
the the storm just started rolling in at that point. And right as we were cleaning up to go, the lightning alarm went off. And then and then as I was one of the last to leave, and as Sarah and I are getting our car and we're leaving, the wind picks up and the rain just starts, you know, coming down. And it was just yeah, it, that that element right there was incredible to see. Uh, we had people show up to this baptism who actually had no intent to be baptized. There was a uh, an older woman who came to be baptized, and she, her daughter came to support her. And her daughter felt so convicted that um, she came in, and she I I came and talked to her a little bit in the water. She came down, and I was a little concerned on a few things, and I asked her questions, and she was like, "Yeah, I I've sinned. I want to repent of my sins, and I want to turn to the Most High." And this was like a first time for her, guys. Like this wasn't like she's been in this for like months or years. It's like it was like I spoke on the fact that you know you come to belief and then you're baptized, boom, like that quick. You you know you place your faith, you get baptized, and that's exactly what happened. And so that was just really exciting to see. So praise God to all that. It's great to hear all the reports, it's particularly the fact that uh, so many communities are being born out of this. Uh, another person who's not in the room tonight is Cher, and she's in the Jacksonville, Florida area. I baptized her a year ago. And she was in my group, and now she's she's branching out after this baptism and starting her own. So we are seeing from this event, just in this room right here, just amongst the 20 people that are in this room, we are seeing four or five uh, small ecclesias um, locally in the U.S. starting to meet. So that is just amazing and miraculous. So that's a definitely a praise y'all. So that being said, let us... Someone just came and opened my door here. Let me close this. All right. Let's get started. I will be talking tonight about some crazy material. We're talking the mud flood and the millennial kingdom once again. I dropped in here a PDF uh, file that I will be reading from and going through notes on tonight. And I labored very, very hard to... <laughs> Thank you for the confidence, Rob. <laughs> I labored very, very hard to get this together for you guys. And I think it's a beauty. And I do think, Rob, that Rob is the one that um, actually introduced me to a lot of these scripture verses that we're going to read tonight. He is the guy that, that really made it possible. And about two or three weeks ago, I scripted the whole thing out. And then it was lost on my computer. It was erased. And I was like, no. And so all day today, as I'm slaving to get this ready, this presentation for tonight, because I had promised to do it all day. I'm just like, not today, Satan, not today. And um, with that being said, let's go ahead and open it up. You guys can just listen or you can, of course, you know, read along with me. Let me know if anyone has problems. This is called The Millennial Kingdom Plus Mud Flood and the Wastelands of the Seraphim. Hopefully in the introduction, you'll get an understanding of um, what this is about. So in my last paper, I had purposely neglected to comment upon the Seraphim Dragons who escorted uh, Hanuk up to heaven. Now, if you, if you were there for the broadcast last Thursday, that's not entirely true because I did comment on them. But in the article, I did not. So this is actually honest in the sense of the actual article. They make an appearance in the rather short text account of 
Hanok. Of course, Hanok is Enoch. If you need a refresher, everybody's eyeballs melted, like something from Raiders of the Lost Ark. The jury is still out on whether or not it's commentary upon a Revelation 20 society. That is, after the thousand-year kingdom of Mashiach on Earth, where we presently find ourselves. I had implied that it may very well be. It's undoubtedly describing the here and now, which, when you think about it, simultaneously makes it post-mud flood. Some may have interpreted my oversight as neglect, malpractice even, but I was only thinking ahead. This is a progressive conversation, and I knew where it was headed. Perhaps you didn't take the time to read my last paper or listen to the last broadcast and are already confused. Not a problem. It's time you get caught up to speed. I'm referring to this passage right here. After he, Hanok, said this, the multitude took up arms to kill him. Suddenly, a whirlwind came from heaven as a storm of fire. Within the whirlwind of fire were seraphim dragons of the power, for, of, the power of Elohim. All who saw this became blind in that moment, for their eyes were burned from their sockets. The account of Enoch 1-4. Epic. <laughs> so much better than the Spielberg movie. Dragons in a whirlwind of fire really shouldn't be too surprising, and is certainly not foreign to Hebrew scripture, as that's precisely what an angel is, a dragon. Only some angels are dragons, though, specifically seraphim angels. The meaning of the Hebrew word seraph, when applied as a verb, means to burn completely. The noun seraph would then mean the burning fiery one. The fact that their eyes were burned and that they became blinded by the side of them is immediately associated with the very framing of the word, seraph. Come to think about it, descriptions such as these give even more authenticity to account of Hanok as having originally been written in Hebrew rather than simply Greek or Latin. And of course, we have you know two different texts uh, of, of Hanok coming from Greek and Latin. What does any of this have to do with actual dragons, you want to know? I was just getting to that. You, you see, a number of passages in scripture identify seraphim with serpents. Remember that time when Yahuwah sent venomous snakes among the children of Yasharel because of the rebellion? The event went down in Numbers chapter 20. The snakes had a burning bite and nearly killed everyone. They were seraphim flaming serpents. The people were saved by staring up at a bronze seraph hung, up, hung from a pole. And I know what you're probably thinking. There's nothing more to see here. It was only an army of well-trained snakes, an army of venomous, well-trained snakes just waiting to spring upon them and massacre everyone, and certainly not a band of destroying angels. Well, before you make up your mind on that, do consider that the prophet Yeshayahu applied seraphim to heavenly beings. Same word. You're likely already familiar with the account, but we'll rehearse it anyways. There's actually more to the wilderness story too. After all, seraphim dragons in the wilderness, among other supernatural beings, is the focus of this paper particularly as they pertain to the millennial kingdom of Yahusha HaMashiach. Understand that the case for Yahusha's kingdom as something which has already physically happened upon the earth will not be made here. 
it will only be presumed. It's a big topic, and I certainly can't cover everything as usual, nor do I intend to. If that's too much for you, then I suggest starting at the beginning. Hopefully, though, the canvas will be painted with enough veracity, as well as the added strokes of speculation, so as to enable you to continue the research on your own. The thing is, before we delve into the wilderness narrative, a case needs to be made as to why the dragons spoken about on Earth correspond with the dragons in heaven, or else you, you probably won't believe anything I say. It certainly wouldn't be the first time. Let's get to it then. Yeshayahu writes the following. This comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also Yahuwah sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahuwah uh, Sevaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Yeshayahu, chapter 6, 1 through 4. Still not dragons, though, you tell me. They're just angels. Oh, are they? Just because Yeshayahu neglected to describe them as serpentine creatures doesn't mean that they're not. I decline telling you things all the time. Doesn't mean it isn't so. Some things are simply self-evident. Every Hebrew word has intended meaning, and I have and I have yet to see anything else attributed to Seraph than a fiery burning serpent. You have just peered in upon dragons in heaven. Yeshiahu gives us further descriptions of Seraph on earth. I kind of just skimmed over the uh, Numbers 20 affair. Yeshayahu skims over other details also, but knowing what we do about his vision of heaven, they may very well give additional insight into the bronze seraph story. Notice how he later describes the road from Canaan to Egypt. And if you look here, I have this uh, really, really awesome uh, picture I tracked down of Egyptian hieroglyphs of a, uh, a very common uh, depiction in Egypt of the serpents that flew. They had wings. They're fiery serpents. So just keep that in mind. So I have two texts here side by side. One comes from the Sefer and the other from the Targum. Yeshayahu chapter 30 verse 6. We'll read from the Sefer first. The burden of the beast of the Negev into the land of trouble and anguish from whence come the young and old lion, the viper, and fiery flying serpents. They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon the bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. And now from the Aramaic Targum, they carry upon their beast of burden on the way southward into a land of oppression and distress, a place of the lion and the whelps of the lioness and serpents and of the flying basilisk. They carry upon the shoulders of their, their young cattle, their, uh, cattle, their treasures, and they bring upon the bunches of camels whatever is in their treasuries unto a people that shall not profit them. Both the Hebrew Masoretic and Aramaic Targa make a distinction between your typical creepy crawly serpent and flying serpent. The Hebrew even tells us the non-flying serpent is a poisonous one, hence viper. Therefore, you cannot claim that the burning serpent is simply a viper. There is more than meets the eye here. The Aramaic Targum 
takes this a step further and calls the flying serpent a basilisk. What I believe Yeshayahu is telling us is that spiritual as well as physical serpents live in the wilderness, frustrating the road between Yasharel and Egypt. A comparable account can be related to Yahusha's own infancy. When Yosef, Miriam, and the family made their escape to Egypt, we read the following accounts. And having come to a certain cave and wishing to rest in it, the blessed Miriam uh, dismounted from her beast and sat down with the child Yahusha in her bosom. And there were with Yosef three boys and with Mary a girl, going on the journey along with them. And lo, suddenly there came forth from the cave many dragons. And when the children saw them, they cried out in great terror. Then Yahushua went down from the bosom of his mother and stood on his feet before the dragons, and they adored Yahushua and thereafter retired. The, uh, the gospel of the, I, I miswrote that there, it should be the infancy gospel of uh, pseudo Matthew chapter 18. And by the way, as crazy as that account um, looks, there are quite a few accounts just like that from the time of the Roman Empire when uh, dragons were still coming out of caves and scaring women and children. Uh, if anyone has been to my house, you will know that I have, <laughs> I have a type of dragon there that is very frightening. Okay, fine. Maybe these are only physical dragons and not spiritual ones. It's difficult to tell. My point still stands. Spiritual entities unclean ruach, if you will, reside in the wild places of the earth. The very adult Yahusha even tells us so. The Hebrew Gospel of Matthew chapter 12 says, Now, when the Satan goes out of a man, he walks by difficult places seeking rest, and he does not find it. Translations from the Greek will stress desert places, but difficult places seems just as deserted to me. Getting back to the seraphim dragons again. There's a conspiracy you may have heard of regarding our reptilian overlords. Yeah, you, <laughs> you heard me. Try not to roll your eyes too heavily as they may get stuck like that one of these times, and that would be unhealthy. In the following text, we are actually given a description of one such reptilian. I saw watchers in my vision, a dream vision. And behold, two of them argued about me and said, and we don't know what they said, but, and they were engaged in a great quarrel concerning me. I asked them, you, what are you? Uh, thus probably arguing about me. They answered and said to me, we have been made masters and rule over all the sons of men. And they said to me, which of us do you choose? I raised my eyes and saw one of them. His looks were frightening like those of a viper and his garments were multicolored and he was extremely dark. And afterwards, I looked and beheld by his appearance, and his face was like that of an adder. And he was covered with, well, we don't know what he's covered with, uh, but something together and over his eyes. This watcher, who is he? He said to me, this watcher and his three names are uh, Belial, Prince of Darkness, and uh, Melchirisha. And I said, my lord. What rule, and again, this is all choppy, the text. This comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, And he said to me, and all his paths are darkness, and all his work is darkness, and he is in darkness, and he rules over all darkness, and I rule over all light. 
the vision of Amram. I probably should have told you it was a watcher or two in advance. Also, given some context to the passage uh, before asking you to read it. Amram, you see, was the grandson of Levi and the father of Moshe. Elsewhere, the book of Yashar, that would be Jasher, gives us some details surrounding his present circumstances. The sons and grandsons of the 12 patriarchs began burying them in Canaan as they died, each in turn. Only Yosef was kept in Egypt under lock and key uh, by, by order of Pharaoh, as a prophecy was made by Pharaoh's magicians that the entire land would go dark on the day of his removal. How interesting. It was while Amram was on one such burial mission that war broke out between both countries, Egypt and Canaan. The border was shut down, and Amram, Amram remained there, separated from his wife and family for something like 41 years, which is an insane amount of time. It is there in Canaan where he had his vision of the two watchers. The first watcher is presented to Amram as Belial, Prince of Darkness. Recognize the name? I do. He's none other than Hasatan. The other figure is somebody named Meshelzedek. You might have heard of him. He's the Prince of Light and King of Righteousness, but also a watcher. Bet you never thought of Meshelzedek as a watcher before. And no, Meshelzedek isn't a reptilian, as it has already been explained in a past paper who the first Meshelzedek is. He was Noah's nephew. At any rate, Aram describes Belial as having the literal looks of a viper and the face of an adder. Not poetry. Hasatan, or rather Belial, is a watcher, but also a reptilian. But again, that shouldn't surprise anyone, as he's already described to us as a dragon in Revelation. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of Elohim, and have the testimony of Yahushua HaMashiach. Revelation chapter 12, 15 through 17. I chose this passage for a very specific purpose, as it seems kind of like a mud flood event to me. Perhaps just a coincidence, or perhaps not. Now that I think about it, Revelation 12 looks identical to the mud flood event. The earth swallows up wa the waters before the entire world can be flooded. That is precisely what we are observing on every single continent of this motionless plane. As entire cities, really pick any city reported to be older than 200 years, are buried under 12 to 20 feet of mud and sediment, give or take. The proposition has already been given several times over, that the mud flood event lines up with the release of the Watchers, who are then described in Hanok as trampling over the cities like ravenous wolves or lions. Is it possible that we are gazing in upon the very scene by which Hasatan was also released from prison when the set-apart make their exit for the camp of Yah? Amazing how literal the Bible has become. It says right here that, that he then went to make war with the remnant of her seed. If we, have, if we have woken up to the truth of Yahuwah's Torah and crossed over as children of Yasharel, then that's us. Nobody else is at war with seraphim dragons but us. Better get your battle armor on if you haven't already. Hopefully everyone in this room has. We've, we very well may have just seen the release of Hasatan and the Watchers from prison. What this means for us uh, today 
is today the unclean Ruach and Seraphim dragons are no longer relegated to the wilderness places as they once were. It can truly be said at present that they are our reptilian overlords, but it wasn't always so. For the remainder of this paper, I want to focus in upon the collapse of Mystery Babylon. Specifically, I want to ask the question, what happened to Babylon and her confederacy after the ushering in of Mashiach's kingdom? Scripture tells us the wilderness uh, places became a haunt for dragons. It says so right here in Revelation. Chapter 18. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babel the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul ruach, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye not that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. We will undoubtedly search scripture for further confirmation, but really, that's everything you need to know right there. With the commencement of the millennium, Babylon is destroyed. While the remainder of the world shares shares in the joys of Yahusha's kingdom, the ruins of Babel then becomes a habitation of devils and the hold of every foul ruach. Also, I want you to take note of the concluding phrase, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Ask yourself, what sort of unclean bird is a hateful bird? Ravens and crows, I suppose. Vultures are purely sp spiteful, not exactly the happy-go-lucky sort. But what if it's also speaking of another species of bird, a non-physical bird, perhaps? Hold that thought. There is one other phrase which needs appraisal. A voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Babylon has already fallen. How could anyone still partake in her sins? It probably has something to do with the fact that Babylon has become the habitation of devils and unclean ruach. A stunning contrast indeed. The world as a whole is now set apart, except for the wilderness places which aren't. We should then probably ask ourselves, what would happen if some people chose not to come out of her? We just read the answer. They would receive her plagues. Before this is over, you shall see why Yahusha allowed these unclean ruach to live on in the desolate places, rather than simply destroying them once and for all. Scripture actually has plenty to say on Babylon after its fall. I've managed to get my hands on several passages. Thank you, Rob. There's probably far more. With that being said, let's seek out our first of second witnesses. This one comes from Yirmiyahu, or Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 42 through 43. The sea has come up upon Babel. She is covered with the multitude of the waves thereof. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land, and a wilderness, a land wherein no man dwells. Neither does any son of Adam pass thereby. Not exactly a second witness, as Yirmiyahu speaks nothing of unclean Ruach. Still, though, we can at least establish that the former kingdom of Hasatan has... Um, uh, has become a desolation, desolation and a wilderness, by which no son of Adam dwells therein. Reading on, this one comes from Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15. 
This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Beast. Hmm. Another added detail. Zephaniah tells us of Yermiahu's desolated cities. Only now, beasts find rest in them. Additionally, it says that people do pass by, or rather, somebody passes by, whoever everyone is. The, the point being, everyone who passes by hisses and shakes their hands at the ruinous capitals of those who once compared themselves with the I am. Next witness. This one comes from Baruch, chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Take a good heart, O Yerushalayim, for he that gave you that name will comfort you. Miserable are they that afflicted you, and rejoiced at your fall. Miserable are the cities which your children served. Miserable is she that received your sons. For as she rejoiced at your ruin, and was glad of your fall, so shall she be grieved for her own desolation. For I will take away the rejoicing of her great multitude, and her pride shall be turned into mourning. For fire shall, uh, shall come upon her from the everlasting, long to endure, and she shall be inhabited of devils for a great time. A dutiful inquiry will ask to see evidence of this so-called fire which came down and destroyed those cities. Oh, believe me, entire cities were melted. The evidence is there. You just have to look for it. Following this breadcrumbs, however, would be a distraction from the topic at hand, as Baruch has escalated the severity of the situation. Ruinous Babel Ruinous Babylon has just been upgraded from being a desolation without people or a desolation with beasts and any number of hissing passerbys to one which is inhabited of devils. Still not seeing anything about dragons, though. Let's keep combing scripture. This one comes from Yermiahu, chapter 27, verse 22 in the Septuagint, the LXX. And they shall be ashamed, for it is a land of graven images, and in the islands where they boasted. Therefore shall idols dwell in the islands, and the young of monsters shall, shall dwell in it. I shall not be inhabited, uh, it shall not be inhabited any more forever. As Elohim overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities bordering upon them, said Yahuwah, no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn there. The destruction of Mystery Babylon is compared with the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. We should probably expect to see lots of melted buildings then. And we do. But again, let's not get distracted. Here we see the young of monsters dwelling within. Is that the same thing as saying the offspring of monsters? I don't know. You tell me. It shouldn't be too difficult to imagine that monsters do have babies. I mean, why wouldn't they? Even monsters have reproductive organs. That being said, I think I know what the LXX is hinting at here. But at present, it's just conjecture. I'm not ready to give it away quite yet. You'll have to read what I think about those little monsters a little further down the road. Turning now to Yermiyahu, Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 33. And uh, Chatzor, or I believe Hazor, shall be a dwelling for dragons. There it is. And a desolation forever. There shall no man abide there, nor any son of Adam dwell in it. Ah, there it is. We're back in Yermiahu again. The prophet certainly didn't let us down this time. He says it. Dragons. I'll let you, I'll let you look up the location of um, 
Chatzor, or rather Hazor, for yourself. When you do, remind yourself that it was in past centuries a dwelling for dragons. Before you tell me it's not yet a dwelling for dragons, pay attention to the fact that every place being described to us is not only ruinous, they were dug up out of the sand in the 1800s or sometime thereafter. That tells us something. The prophecy being referred to was fulfilled. In other terms, if the prophecy is simply referring to animal dragons, and it very well may, then show me where those animal dragons exist today. Am I expected to believe that the Komodo dragon will find a home there? Exactly. Another witness from Yirmiyahu reads, this comes from Jeremiah 51 verse 37, And Babel shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment, a hissing, without inhabitant. It says Babel shall become heaps. Now ask yourself, did Babel become heaps? Check. Babylon is in heaps. That means it has already become a dwelling place for dragons. I have included the picture of a dragon as represented on ancient Babylon's Ishtar gate. Notice the bird-like talons for hind legs. A clue. Somebody on the internet will surely demand evidence that such a dragon ever physically existed. If so, then you might as well demand scientific evidence for the presence of angels. Same thing. Because, while I do believe in the historical relevance of dragon animals, the subject of this paper is mostly seraphim dragons. If you're paying attention, the haunt which I'm suggesting is dragons of the fallen nature. During the Millennial Kingdom, only Hasatan and the 200 watchers who descended upon Mount Hermon are described to us as imprisoned. But as we have already seen, there were others. They were driven out into the ruined cities of Mystery Babylon. Sometimes you start your milkshake, milkshake by eating the cherry on top. But this time, I've saved you the best for last. Yeshayahu really steps up his game when giving us the following description. Now, I have these side by side. Uh, the first comes from the Sefer, the second from the Aramaic Targum, Isaiah 34, 14. So I'll read from the Sefer first. The wild beast of the desert shall also meet with the wild beast of the island, and the satire shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find uh, for herself a place of rest. And then the Aramaic Targum says, And there shall meet one another, martins and wildcats, and demons. Each shall sport with its companion. Verily, dryads shall dwell there, and they shall find rest for themselves. So the Sefer says screech owl. Most translations do, or at least many of them do. Must be that unclean bird then. How did Revelation describe them birds again? They were hateful. Owls don't exactly come across to me as hateful, but maybe wires are crossed. Maybe owls really are hateful. The thing is, though, the Hebrew word being used for screech owl is, well, there's the Hebrew word right in front of you, or Lilith, if you're Hebrew illiterate, and I am. Lilith. That's pronounced Lilith. Strong's Concordance 3917 for all you fact checkers out there. It's a feminine word. From the best of my understanding, no other ancient source, be it Assyrian, Babylonian, Akkadian, or the other surrounding languages, refers to Lilith as anything other than a night hag or a night demon. A bird, perhaps, but not a screech owl. Somebody's screeching in the night, all right, and she has a name. 
the ASV says night monster. The BBE says night spirit. Many translations, however, leave it as it is and says Lilith. The Aramaic Targum, however, drops another clue and tells us this Lilith character is actually a dryad. Just so we're clear, a dryad is a nymph or nature ruach who lives in trees. By now, my serial reader knows the earth is a spiritual realm, a womb, really, and that ruach are in everything, including lightning and the sun and the moon and clouds and the wind and so on and so forth. I have long been seeking a scriptural reference to the inhabitation of ruach and trees, and I have just now found one. Lilith may in fact inhabit a tree from time to time. Christmas trees ring a bell? That leads us right back to Asherah poles. I wouldn't bend down and pick up those presents if I were you. I'm almost certain Lilith and Asherah are the same entity. Wait, what's this? It, it's a carved stone depicting, depicting a woman with angel wings. Is that a snake for a crown? Hard to tell. She's definitely naked, though. Looks to be a fertility go goddess. Owls flank her on either side. Rather interesting because, as we have already seen, the word Lilith is sometimes translated as screeching owl. Even some translators prefer screeching owl in the Epic of Gilgamesh rather than telling us the truth. The Mesopotamian uh, terracotta plaque, uh, was what we're looking at, is known to us today as the Bernie Relief, though its far more appropriate title is the Queen of the Night. It's okay, you can say it, Lilith. Something's definitely. Something is definitely screeching in the night, all right. From what I've so far been able to gather, Lilith makes yet another appearance in the Aramaic Targum. Let's see if it delivers any further clues. This comes from the Targum of Job, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. On the day at the beginning of the week, while his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother, a messenger came to Job and said, the cows were plowing and the she-asses were grazing at their side when Lilith, the queen of Sheba and of Margod, fell upon them suddenly and led them away. And they killed the young men, crowds of them, at the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. No, I don't believe the Targum of Job is actually saying Solomon's queen of Sheba and Lilith are the same. Considering the timeline, there's hundreds of years between the two. Calling Lilith the Queen of Sheba may in fact be little different than describing the Prince of Persia who held the Archangel Michael back for 21 days. We are simply being told about the spiritual entities who take an active part in the physical realm. Thus, given everything we've just experienced, Yeshayahu might literally read as follows, And desert beast shall meet with the island beast, and a goat demon, satire, shall call to his neighbor, surely there Lilith shall repose, and she shall find a resting place for herself. Yeshayahu 34.14 Something I forgot to mention, uh, or something I forgot to com comment upon in Yeshayahu 34.14 is the mention of a goat demon. Most translations prefer relegating it simply to a demon, so as not to have people poking their noses where it doesn't belong. But the Sefer actually translates it accurately. The goat demon is a satire. Half man, half goat. You might know him as the kind Mr. Tumnus, but the ancient world knew him as Pan. Serial rapist, 
child molester, erectile <laughs> agitator, Pan. Why is Pan and Lilith hanging out together? Probably up to no good. Now, if you scroll down, you'll you'll see this beautiful painting. And what do we have here? I just answered it for you. It's a painting, a Baroque painting. More importantly, though, we see a ruinous landscape inhabited by a nymph and a satyr. To erase any doubts, its title even says as much. Landscape with Nymph and Satire Dancing. The internet tells me its artist is somebody named Claude Lorraine and is described to us as a French painter, draughtsman, and etcher of the Baroque era. My serial reader undoubtedly knows the satyrs as the child rapist Pan. Is the Nymph Lilithin? We are not told. Truth in plain sight, perhaps, as we're pressed to ask ourselves if we're gazing in upon a literal scene from the book of Yeshayahu. A satyr and a tree ruach, identities unknown, have found rest among the haunts of civilization. Sounds pretty literal to me. They are now enacting rites of the mystery religion. And if I'm not mistaken, they're making a neophyte out of someone. I knew it up to no good. You almost get the impression, just staring at this painting, that the neophyte hopes to return to civilization. Lilith's place in the story serves its purpose. The story of her origin can be found in the religion of the Jews, but most assuredly can be traced elsewhere. I remind you that religion of the Jews is based upon tradition, officially speaking. I'm not saying Lilith was the first wife of Adam. Rather, I'm simply laying out the possibility. She may very well have been. I don't really know. Either she was or she wasn't. Which is the lie? Who knows? I'm still trying to figure that one out. I've never lost any sleep over it. All I can do is report on this stuff. What we are doing here, you see, is researching. After another day of backbreaking work in the mine, I present to you the shiny stuff and you decide whether it's gold or fool's gold. That being said, I will probably be flogged for providing the same account side by side with the Aleph Bet of Ben Sira, but I simply don't care anymore. Time is short. In a post-mud flood society, you can't dig for the truth unless you're willing to get your hands dirty. I therefore present to you the story of Adam and Lilith. Now, there's you see two texts side by side. I'm not going to take the time to read both of them, but if you compare them, they're they're very similar. I will, however, read from the Legion of the Jews. Um, so here we go. The divine resolution to bestow a companion on Adam met with the wishes of man who had been overcome by a feeling of isolation when the animals came to him in pairs to be named. To banish his loneliness, uh, Lilith was first given to Adam as wife. Like him, she had been created out of the dust of the ground, but she remained with him only a short time because she insisted upon enjoying full equality with her husband. She derived her rights from their identical origin. With the help of the ineffable name, which she pronounced, Lilith flew away from Adam and vanished in the air. And I just now thought of this. I should have compared the uh, portion in the Targum in Numbers where the son of Aaron does the exact same thing and he flies after the bad guys. Adam complained before Elohim that the wife he had uh, given him had deserted him, and Elohim sent forth three angels to capture her. They found her in the Red Sea, and they sought to make her go back with the threat that, unless she went, 
she would lose a hundred of her demon children daily by death. But Lilith preferred this, this punishment to living with Adam. She takes revenge by injuring babies, baby boys during the first night of their life, while baby girls are exposed to her wicked design until they are 20 days old. Guys, that's Torah right there. Uh, it's leading up to the circumcision and the clean and unclean and all that. The only way to ward off the evil is to attach an amulet bearing the names of her three angel captors to the children, uh, for such had been the agreement between them. The woman destined to become the true companion of man was taken from Adam's body, for only when like is joined unto like, the union is uh, indissoluble. The creation of woman for man was possible because Adam originally had two faces, which were separated at the birth of Eve. That's kind of strange. Um, I should mention here, I forgot to put this in the paper, that that's actually where we get lullaby, right? We sing lullabies to our children because of, of Lilith. So um, just fun little fact there. What really stu uh, stuck out to me here is that Lilith is described as the mother of demons. Rather than filling the role of the matriarch of humanity by which the Ruachs, created before Yah's throne, might ultimately be conceived and born in their allotted hour, we've talked about that in the past, Lilith wanted to create Ruach of her own, demons. In return, the Most High promised to handicap their daily population growth, perhaps to compensate for the number of Adam's sons on the earth. It's all conjecture, obviously. Again, you are free to roll your eyes. I'm only the reporter. Her stated role as matriarch of demonology, though, should call your attention to the fact that we have already read how the wastelands would become the haunts of little monsters and devils. And now you know. During the Millennial Kingdom, it might be said that the Queen of Sheba was ruling over her children and perhaps still having them. The other half of the equation in Yashiyahu 3414 is the satyr. I'm being repetitive at this point by stating that Pan was a satyr. Well, what if I told you that the satyr was Ham? Same Ham, the one and only, Noah's son. Pan and Ham are the same. I'll go ahead and throw this out there. The following text is once again questionable. In other chapters, red flags may be planted on the Roman propaganda. That tells us there are corruptions present truth mixed with lies. Feel free not to get your hands dirty if that's what you're at, if that's where you're at in this investigation. The travels of Noah into Europe makes historical claims, however, which are indeed stunning. Continuing on with the Sons of Cain tradition, hint serpent seed, the Sons of Ham became the toppler of thrones and kingdoms on every continent, including Italy. Why would Rome expose that? So I'm going to just read this, and if this doesn't like blow your mind, then I don't know what to tell you. This comes from the travels of Noah into Europe, chapter starting in 19 and going through chapter 20. Having thus touched the death of this good patriarch, no, that would be Noah, it shall not, uh, it shall not be now uh, impertinent something to remember and speak of the wicked and abominable life of his son, Ham, which although of itself it be worthless of any uh, recept oh man, <laughs> recital guys, this is coming out of Latin so, uh, yet to descend to the line all genealogy of the uh, Libyan, Hercules the Great so they're saying Hercules is a descendant of Ham, actually there was Isis uh, Osiris, they all say they're descended from Ham, really fascinating stuff it cannot, will, uh, it cannot be well omitted from which Hercules, uh, Dardanus, uh, the first founder and erector of Troy, descended and came. 
It hath been already specified how Noah dividing the universal earth unto his children, and how Ham abounding in all vices and the detestable courses, notwithstanding, was not deprived of his portion, but had his rights of inheritance justly allotted unto him, which was the third part of the world, and particularly Africa to the hither part of Egypt, for which countries he was commanded by his father to depart with his wife, uh, Nogla, and five and thirty rulers, which is as much to say as the chiefs of family of his blood and house, as also with their children in issue, which was accordingly performed. And presently he established himself as king and Saturn of Egypt, where he erected and built a city called Hem-Min, and among them also he himself was called Pan. And Silvanus, which people likewise so um, engendered and issued of that family to honor and worship him the more and to show their love unto him, lived in all impious and ungracious manner, perpetrating most odious and soul damning villainies, affirming publicly that men ought lawfully to have the company of their own mothers, sisters, and daughters in all lust and, uh, and, uh, concu, uh, of the flesh, and other many most inhuman and shameful acts not to be recited. Guys, that's, that's describing Pan right there. And to show that they gloried and boasted in the wickedness of such their king and ruler, they intermed him by the name Ham Esunus, um, which signified their infamous god Pan. And thus he ruled in Egypt long time, even into the 6th and 50th year of the reign of uh, Jupiter Balus, the second king of Babylon, in which year he began to travel and came into Italy. Okay, and then he, he overthrows Italy. Uh, and it also, uh, it also says here, I'll just read the whole thing, why not? Um, okay, well, I'll skip to the yellow part here. Persuading them, being of themselves well addicted to usury, robbery, murder, poisonings, and the study of the magic art. So they're saying uh, Ham was a great magician, uh, who by reason of his own great skill therein was surnamed Zerostes. Um, that should sound familiar to everybody. And was the first inventor and practicer of that of that vile and diabolical learning, of the use of which he composed and wrote many books. And he was called generally throughout the world, uh, Cam Essenus, and there's some lats in there, uh, that the Turk for those such like causes is called in his letters, patent, Le Grand Cam de Tartaria. That's the other thing about the travels of Noah into Europe. We are given several quips about Tartaria. I wish I, I could pause and comment upon Tartaria as a geographical landscape some more, particularly in this book, but we've got other matters to attend to. Actually, I hope to conclude our discourse over the next few pages. But before doing so, there's an interesting passage from the Book of Jubilees that deserves tending to, as I expect it will help fill in the missing details of the overall narrative. This comes from Jubilees chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In the 29th Jubilee, in the first week, in the beginning thereof, uh, some guy named Arpachshad took to himself a woman, and her name was uh, Rasuia, the daughter of Shushan, the daughter of Elam. And she bore him a son in the third year in this week, and he called his name Canaan. And the son grew, and his father taught him writing, and he went to seek for himself a place where he might seize for himself a city. And he found a writing which former generations had carved on the rock, and he read what was thereon, and he transcribed it and sinned 
owing to it, for it contained the teaching of the watchers in accordance with which they used to observe the omens of the sun and moon and stars in all the signs of heaven. And he wrote it down and said nothing regarding it, for he was afraid to speak to Noah about it, lest he should be angry with him on account of it. We have already established that the watchers were reptilian, which is to say the same as seraphim. And where did this Canaan fellow find their writings again? In the waste places. With Canaan, the religion of the watchers carried on. There is an overall point to this exercise. Imagine Yahushua HaMashiach physically ruling over the face of the earth. The beast has been thrown into the lake of fire. Mystery Babylon has been overturned and left to ruin. The devils and dragons have been relegated to those wastelands, however, for a purpose. Elsewhere, mankind is still sinful by nature. Torah, however, is the supreme law of the land. In that law, we are instructed not to invoke the names of any other Elohim but Yahuwah, the Most High. In Exodus 25.13, it states, In all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other Elohim, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. The idea is, if the land were purged of all other Elohim, including unclean Ruach, then children and future generations of children would grow up knowing nothing about them, naturally. It would be very difficult indeed to invite them into a clean space if the inhabitants of the land knew nothing about unclean living. Being set apart would finally be the standard, just as it is in heaven. In those regards, we can see Torah in action with the following passage. This comes from Zechariah. And it shall come to pass in that day, says Yahuwah Sevaoth, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean Ruach to pass out of the land. Zechariah 13.2 there it is. During the Millennial Kingdom, no unclean Ruach could be found in the land. It says there were also no prophets. I take that to mean there were no false prophets in the land, only speakers of truth, as the kingdom had taken the broom to everything of deceit. That is not to say that false prophets could not be found anywhere in creation. It simply means they could not be learned from within the land, as all surviving false prophets would have made the move with the unclean Ruach into the outer rim of the kingdom. On a side note, it never says the sons of Cain could not be found in the wastelands. Wink, wink. Well, what would happen if you told humanity, or rather, the sons of Adam, not to go into the whereabouts of the wasteland? In, say, the ruins of ancient Egypt and Babylon, people would be tempted to go, naturally. They would want to explore the windswept ruins for themselves, just to see what it was exactly that the king had forbidden. It's human nature. Curiosity kills the cat. There they would meet the young of monsters and the devils, the nymph and the satyr, Lilith, Pan, dragons of old, fallen angels, watchers, seraphim. Like Canaan after the flood of Noah, they would then be instructed by them. Also, like Canaan with Noah, they might return to society and neglect telling anyone. They would then have hidden knowledge. Follow the course of events. What if those individuals with so-called enlightenment began instructing others in ancient occult practices? Torah tells precisely what to do. Follow along. This comes, this is the infamous Deuteronomy chapter 13. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, 
whereof he spoke unto you, saying, Let us go after other Elohim, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. You shall not hearken unto the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahuwah Elohim proves you to know whether ye love Yahuwah Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after Yahuwah Elohim and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken to turn you away from Yahuwah Elohim, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust you out of the way which Yahuwah Elohim commanded you to walk in. So shall you put the evil away from the midst of you. The answer is, the person who teaches others to follow any other Elohim but Yahuwah should be put to death. Then again, what if the emissaries of Yahushua's kingdom became lack in judgment? A transgression here, a transgression there. Less last decade's tolerance becomes next decade's norm. Turn a blind eye to justice and the little white lies that pervert it. And what if that said individual who had learned firsthand knowledge from the dragons and the devils of the wasteland were, say, an artist? Or how about a musician, an architect, or a master mason even? Scribe, poet, historian? What would then happen to Yahushua's kingdom? If judgments were not enacted and the worship of the serpent not nipped in the butt, truth itself would be marred. Holy would be mixed with the profane. Mankind would once again be pressed with the age-old decision to choose that day whom they would serve. You probably know where this is going, as history has a habit of repeating itself. Mankind has a penchant for rebellion. Everything we have so far observed about the millennial kingdom what is described to us as greater Tartaria proves that point. You will ask me why Yahushua HaMashiach would allow the teachings of other Elohim to enter his kingdom. It says right there in, in Deuteronomy 13 that Yahuwah does it in order to prove you, to know whether ye love Yahuwah Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul. And if you've been following the mud flood narrative, then you know precisely what happens next. Those who chose the curse rather than the blessing, were either destroyed or tossed out of Yah's camp when Hasatan and the Watchers were released from prison. The Great Reset. We've all seen the photos. They were either destroyed in the floodwater or left to blindly wander the vacant cities and the magnificent buildings that their forefathers had built in the light of a universal government, a sign now to an inferior technology and a past narrative which deceptively speaks of a darkened age. Those of us just now waking up to the truth of Yahuwah's law are the descendants of those rebels. They did not heed to Yahuwah's warning when he said, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, You shall not make you any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down yourself unto them, nor serve them, for I, Yahuwah Elohika, am a jealous El, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children until the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and guard my commandments. And uh, you guys do the math. I, I kind of think we're the third and you know fourth or fifth generation uh, following that. So that concludes that right there. Hopefully that was um, insightful to this group. You guys could have jumped at any time. It would not have been disrupting me. Um, but hopefully this all made sense. Um, I was trying to really go into scripture here and paint a picture of what what's going on in the millennial reign. Now, you could argue whether the millennial reign has happened or it hasn't happened yet, but the picture is still the same. 
there are the the unclean spirits, the, the angels, the fallen angels that are cast out into the wilderness. And the warning is, don't go out to them. Don't be taught by these people, because if you do, you're going to be deceived. So um, if anyone has any thoughts, if anyone wants to jump in, feel free to do so. I can shut up and for the rest of the night. Yeah, yeah Noli, I, I think you did a great job pulling that, that uh, information together in a storyline here. I saw how uh, uh, you tied in the and gave more detail on the Lilith, Lilith piece and also the the dragons and wastelands. How you pulled that together? I thought you did a great job. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, this was actually I. This was the first time that I had actually really pressed myself to look into Lilith. Um, I've you know often pondered about her and um I, I was just seeing some connections to ashira i i i you know lilith is com uh considered to be um Hasatan's consort um i guess in a lot of ancient societies well the thing about ashira is that we are told that she was considered to be yahuwah's consort and so you kind of see like a total perversion there um I, and but there's so many connections between Ashira and the ancient Babylonian practices is of this uh, love slash war goddess, um, you know, similar to um, to Ishtar or where we get Easter. Um, you see the same uh, divine being kind of making its rounds through uh, different cultures and religions. And I, 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 I highly, I, I'm kind of becoming a, a believer that Lilith, in some capacity is a legitimate being. I'm not sure where I am yet on the whole Adam first wife story. You know, what is the lie? What is the truth right. here? Uh, but it's, it's certainly interesting and in, uh, to think about. Yeah. And, and I think what a lot of people have a hard time with is the description or the thought of, uh, you know, the satire, Lilith dragons, all, all of these things, because they're, they're not necessarily on TV and being shown around and all, but we see the, we see them in, in history and we see them in even occult practices, uh, even today still being prevalent. So it's not like it's gone away or it was, uh, something made up. It's still has its presence. Maybe, um, <clears throat> maybe it's hidden in plain sight. I yeah. don't know if this is confirmation um it's really weird <laughs> but within the last week since our last meeting um i saw an interesting short video um that sh that was a comparison between a t-rex skeleton a tyrannosaurus rex skeleton and the skeleton of an ostrich and they were eerily similar so this the speculation of the author of this video was that the Tyrannosaurus Rexes were not like what we think they are, these big giant guys with big legs and tiny little front legs, but that they were ostrich-like. So they were literally dragons. Yeah, um, I, I've, ever since coming to the truth of uh, everything, particularly the Flat Earth Movement back in like 2015, 2016, the talk very early on, and Eric DeBay was very instrumental in pushing this, was that all dinosaur fossils are a hoax. 
And yeah. it it's it's a it's a it's a difficult conversation to have because usually where the lie is, it's in the uh, the macro or the micro. So things you can't things that are too big to see, like space. Or things that are too little to see, like viruses, uh, or things that are in our blood, or DNA, or body structure, and things like that. Uh, but with with fossils, these are things that you know. He brings up a lot of good points, and I mean, I've always known this that the the field of archaeology has always been corrupted from the day one. I mean, they they clearly lie about things. It is. I, I could give some examples if anyone wants them of things that I've actually seen in the field, but you you look at um, you look at Wall Street, you look at the White House; they're all corrupted, and things were being lied to. But I know personally uh, archaeologists. One is a guy named Joe Taylor. He's a he's an amazing guy. I know these people who actually go and dig this stuff up. Like they find it, they dig it up, and they'll tell me how they do it. And I've gone and I've seen, I've gone and done the Eric Dubay quiz uh, test, and I've gone to museums and I said, can you show me the original fossils? Because apparently they roll out all the fake fossils. And in the Smithsonian and those places they do. But then there's like, uh, I've talked to the, uh, there's a there's a Allosaurus in the um, AIG, Answers in Genesis Museum in Kentucky. And as it turns out, the Allosaurus there is the real fossil bones. And not only that, I know the guy who dug it up, Joe Taylor. I, he's a friend of mine. I know him. Um, so there, so I have that there. So the interesting thing about dinosaurs is that, or these dragons, is uh, if you were to look at like a um, a hippopotamus skull or an elephant skull, like you had never seen an elephant before, and you and you dug up an elephant like someone just do a google search on an elephant skull it looks like a cyclops like you would look at that thing and you would never come to the conclusion that that had a big old trunk and big old floppy ears and a little tiny tail you see what i'm saying and so i do think that whatever these bones are and Polly is in this group and he has i love his theory that they're actually giant bones uh what very well could be um i i do think whatever we're looking at is um, obviously a lot of them, we don't have the complete structures. Uh, it's all made up fantasy, what they, a lot of them look like. Um, and a, a good, ex uh, something that I actually think that these dragons, uh, these dinosaur dragons are actually much more like the Chinese dragons that we see, you know, like very limber serpentine bodies kind of that had hunches and they rolled around long tails. The reason I say that is in 2018, uh, there was a, and I may have said this to this group, if not, forgive me. Uh, if I, if I have, forgive me, I'll say it again. There was a uh, discovery made in India and it made the news. And as soon as it made the news, I said, if this is legit, it's going to be buried really quickly. Like you will never, um, you'll never uh, hear about this again. It'll get buried. And so there was a some sort of contractor, like an electrician down in an old subway somewhere in India. And he they were getting ready to put in like a, like a shopping mall or something like that. And so he had to go down there and kind of, you know, dig around. And he actually found a mummified uh, dinosaur or dragon, a mummified, mind you. And he pulls it out. It's on video. You see the whole thing. He lays it out there, and you see all the villagers coming and looking at it. And this thing is legit. It's real. 
And there were paleontologists that were looking at this and they identified which dinosaur it was. It was a legit dinosaur that was mummified by a human. And um, the funny thing about it is that it actually had a serpentine body. Like they would show it in a museum to have like a, a straight back and all this stuff. Like, no, it was like, it was a legit serpent. Like with, you know, like you would see like Satan tempting Eve. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and one more thing on, on dinosaurs before someone else jumps in is that I also speculate, we just had this discussion on dragons and how there is clearly a, um, a spiritual connotation to dragons. Um, I sometimes wonder if a lot of these fossils we do see um, may be not from Noah's flood, but maybe pre-existent uh, to the age of the seraphim uh, that were, was perhaps on the earth beforehand. And that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, I have, you know, come to the to the conclusion that the Genesis one account is actually a recreation account of a destroyed society beforehand. Um, but when we were living in Europe, we were seeing serpents everywhere, like dragons. Like they, it was everywhere. We went into uh, Windsor Castle, and where like the queen supposedly lives on the the weekends, the the, the reptilian in the flesh, and. <laughs> My wife and I were going into every room in Windsor Castle, in every single room. We were seeing a lot of the green man, interestingly enough, but in every single room, there were serpents. In every room, like it would be a doorknob with a serpent. Or the next room, you'd see a vase with a serpent in it. And the next room, you'd see a table with like the legs of the table had a serpent going up it. And then the next room, you'd look at the crown molding on top of the room and it had serpents. And I walked out of that castle and I said to my wife, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a conspiracy theorist here, but they seem to really <laughs> be fascinated with serpents. And so you, you get this idea that, uh, you know, they're reptilian, right? Like the seraphim that rule the world, like uh, the, the worship of these, uh, these dinosaurs, in my opinion, may that the, the esoteric may actually be the worship of the serpent, if that makes any sense to anybody. So it's kind I of, know. a yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I don't mean to interrupt your, your ramblings. Uh, you're, no, you're I was great. finished. I was finished. <laughs> I, I know, but you finished, and then you added denims after every sentence, and you go into another story. You're, you're, you're wonderful at that. Um, I was just going to add um, one thing, and you know you published my story, The Ride, and it, it featured a, a very famous flat earther on your website. Um, That's my favorite, so what, my favorite of your stories, by the way. Oh, thank, thank you. Um, I, um, so what – I mean I've been into uh, what do you call cryptozoology since since i was a child um, because my dad's a geologist and actually three years ago we went up to minnesota to the uh, not minnesota um montana to the badlands anyway we went to look for dinosaur bones we found some leaves and we took it to a museum blah 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 anyway some fossilized structures um and so he and i have very very different opinions on the the birth of the world and whatnot but uh so one of the biggest things that I stumbled upon was the coincidence, quote unquote, of the Smithsonian's um, creation of their uh, Museum of Dinosaurs. Um, and at the same time, um, farmer this and farmer that, you know, like 10 years before, found giants. And they're like, we have these giant, you know, uh, remains and there's giants and they took pictures of them and whatever. And then suddenly they're not giants anymore. They're dinosaurs like that. That, that ties into it, too. But on the note of um on the, of the serpents everywhere i mean is it is it all i mean it's completely to me completely plausible that these guys worship these 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 devils you know they, they worship them they were their gods and 
So what's happening is uh, the, 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 the hiding in plain sight, right? Like, oh, no, dragons didn't exist, but these other things existed, hiding the seraphim from us because they are their gods, as what um, Gideon tore down and Hezekiah tore down the teraphim, the household gods, right? These little seraph idols or whatever. And so there's still seraph idols everywhere. I mean, you've seen them physically in reality, but, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's the hiding in plain sight that really just, just really irks me. I mean, I just can't stand the way that, that they do that. Um, geez. Anyway, I could go on and on, but uh, there's my thought. That's the first that I've ever heard the connection about. You said Gideon. Did he destroy the, you said the teraphim? That's the first I've ever heard that. So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, there's a bunch of dudes when they go down and tear the high places down. You know, then the people will build them again. Then another judge or another another king will come by and tear them down. You know, again and again. But the word teraphim just means household gods, like in the image of. And I think Dr. Michael Heiser, God bless his soul, um, is uh, is is really introduced me to the idea of um, of that of that the teraphim, and this really put it together when. Um, um, Luke and, and Paul talking about you know the differences between idols and, and the things that they were. So like you can tear an idol down, they can just rebuild it, right? So but there is an actual spirit that that idol represents. So that's when when they put the Ark of the Covenant in, in front of Dagon, you know, da da, the idol's destroyed, right? So the, the spirit's still there, the idol's just destroyed, right? So it's a piece of rock, it's going to crumble, but the spirit behind that piece of rock is still there. So I just want to add to that. Um, there's a lot of prominent families that have family crests that have dragons on them. And also uh, unicorns. And rightfully so, uh, dragons were here. Uh, unicorns were here uh, from my extensive research on it. But I, I want to read in Genesis 1, 20 through 23 real quick. Um, and I'm reading now the Sefer. And this will just confirm that uh, dragons did roam the earth if they still don't. And Elohim said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open expanse of heaven. And Elohim created great dragons, and at every living creature that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and at Yeah, you cut out there, man. Lost you, chicken. So, I mean, does that mean that Leviathan is in the, the 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 family or the order or the grouping of the dragons? What was your question? So I'm asking yeah. about Leviathan, right? We have Leviathan mentioned several times. Yeah. And is, is that just another translation of that word dragon? That's that's a really good question. I mean, my I was just talking about Leviathan recently. I I don't know. I I find um uh, I can't really comment on Leviathan of Behemoth tonight and someone else can jump in. Uh, I was just talking to my wife Sarah about this because it seemed like every time Leviathan and Behemoth comes up in scripture, Lilith was supposedly the first wife of Okay, chicken, you just came in and look <laughs> it's gone again uh anyways um 
you know, Baruch talks about Leviathan as something that will be eaten, uh, which may have already ha- if our time, if the time I'm looking at is uh, correct, it either has happened or hasn't. Uh, but that tells us that Leviathan has to be a kosher animal, uh, including Behemoth as well. Behemoth would have to chew its cud, because I think it says Behemoth would be eaten. Um, but then you see par- portions in Enoch where, like, Leviathan is a hidden wilderness. And then we saw the other, um, um, in the other book, Enoch, where Leviathan and Behemoth are beasts, like beast governments. And so whenever I encounter these creatures, they're either described to me as a physical animal, a spiritual entity, or a government system. And so um, that's that's quite a study to dig into, which I have never done before. I'm just throwing those three observations out, and if someone has any thoughts on that, go ahead and jump in. I have, I have two thoughts. Um, number one, wouldn't it be a different world we'd live in if Peter's vision included dragons? And number two, <laughs> and number two, um, the symbol of the Ouroboros, I've never really come to the full conclusion on that one, and I don't know if that's a dragon or a leviathan. That's the that's the serpent eating its own tail. The the figure eight. Infinity now, do you symbol. now are you saying that sea serpents are leviathans? Um, because I now chicken was in here and he was saying that he believes the unicorns existed. I wholly believe uh, my research also shows that unicorns physically existed. That they're not just the rhinoceros theory that people say, like with the Webster's Dictionary or whatever. Um, yes, unicorns are used today for pedophilia, and it's sick and disgusting how they're pushing that on little girls. Uh, that is a true statement. Um, when I was in Paris, one of the things I really wanted to see there was the uh, the lady in the unicorn tapestries. I'm just one of those guys. I like tapestry. You know, I love I love a conveniently hung drape and uh and so i i got to see the uh the lady in the unicorn it's like in several different tapestries and one of them it's you know the woman is clearly stroking the uh it it it, each of them basically deals with uh, a different uh sensory from uh, aristotle's teachings and one of them she is clearly stroking the unicorn's horn with her hand and that one is for sensuality and sex and like the lion's eyes are really wide in there because he's bashful uh and so you've always seen it you know unicorn treated uh, in those ways uh the but when it comes to the sea serpents i am uh a hundred percent behind the fact that these sea serpents existed the last one that was seen was up in boston area in the 1970s and they actually uh the the witnesses who saw it it was dead on the beach and they actually cut it up into pieces and took it home to and cook it and ate it um and uh, i was when i was living in the oxford area total tartarian city by the way beautiful millennial rain uh city stunningly beautiful city I was walking along, you know, antiquing, because I like to antique, and I walked into an old map shop. It was just, that's all they sold there in the store was just antique maps. And I walked in and I said, I looked at the guy, I said, do you have anything that, uh, that depicts sea serpents? And he just looked at me long and hard. And he's like, he's like, 
step into the back. I think I've got something you're going to like. <laughs> and so he walks, he takes me into the back room. And That's always good. <laughs> yeah, he takes me into the back room. I have it hung in my office back home in Charleston. And it's, um, it, it was an actual page from a science. It's an original, um, it's original page from the 1600s, um, of from a science journal where they were chronicling all the living animals on the earth. And one of them is just of a sea serpent. And I was like, yes. And I actually acquired it. I bought it. I framed it. Um, and, um, so yeah, these were living animals not that long ago. All that to say, I'm kind of, I'm rambling now, Polly, but I was just curious if you thought that was Leviathan, cause I don't connect those with Leviathan at all. Um, I think Leviathan is a, uh, I mean, it is, the Leviathan is described as a serpentine, like coiling creature. So it could be, but it's, it's really hard to say. I don't know. I don't know. So there's the philosophy that when you read scriptures, there's a law of double reference. Um, and I picked that up in seminary. It's, it holds true sometimes, but so we can, we can think that if there is a host of creatures, um, like the serpent from the garden, um, who are, you know, footed and winged and scaled and serpentine, um, then their Ben Elohim representative in the council would be the Leviathan per se. Now that could be total conjecture. I don't know. Um, I don't have an answer. No, I mean, like just like you, we're 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 all trudging through the the knowledge, trying to find the wisdom, right? Affirmative. And since we're on the subject of animals, Dave is really into this new uh, flat Earth map. That is, um, it's basically the the idea is, and I I need to I, I really want to look into this. It's the idea that the 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 moon when you look up at the moon like it's going to be a full moon tomorrow night it's almost a full moon tonight you can go up there and look at it and you see the the black spots on it and the the black spots are actually suppo supposedly a map of the earth and so you could see the what we call the AE map the circular AE flat earth map would actually be the just a little like sliver, a little bottom corner down there. And then there's even greater land. Like we're just like a 10th, like everything we know of this realm is like, like a 10th or, or 15% of the, of the greater realm. And I I just, I was thinking about that today. Oh, he just put it up. Awesome. And I was just thinking about that today. Like if you look at this earth, South America, Africa, Asia, all the different diverse wildlife, you know, in Africa, you have like, the, you know, the, the African elephant and the, the zebra and the, you know, ostrich. And then you got the kangaroo in Australia. Like, think about if there is all that land up there. And this is all just purely speculative conjecture at this point. Uh, if there is all that land up there and that that's a whole different discussion for the millennial kingdom, too. Imagine all the animals up there, just the diverse wildlife up there that we have never seen before. And there could be, because I think about this a lot. I'm like, man, if there were dragons and they existed, like, where are they? You know, where are they? Like, where's this Leviathan and behemoth that is promised to be at the end of days? And I'm like, well, they could be preserved up there. They, there could be a whole, whole bunch of them. That'd be incredible. Yeah, the greater realm. Well, yeah, the Leviathan would have to have uh, scales because it is kosher, and the behemoth would have to chew its cut and have a uh, divided hoof. 
Um, it would it would have to because if Baruch is correct that they will be eaten, you can't eat an unclean animal, right? Yeah, so if you look at that picture Dave is sharing, it actually, you take that and put it up to the moon, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's there. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's like so an x-ray on the moon that shows what our Earth is. There was the the theory of the Pangea with the... <laughs> they 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 take the verse when Peleg was born, the earth was 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 broken up. I've never sat right with that. It's never really hung out in my spirit to say yes on that. And I'm like, well, that just blows away all of the, the smooth earth theory, you know, where there was no water at all. That blows away Pangea. That blows away a lot. I mean, unless the moon changed as well. I mean, we don't know. But uh, I. When Dave introduced that, I, I started looking into that. I'm like, wow, that's kind of amazing. It really is. Yeah, so it does. Where did I cut out earlier? Did you guys hear me read all the scripture and everything? No, you only read yeah. a quarter of it. Yeah, you cut out pretty early. Oh. Well, do you mind me reading it real quick? Uh, go ahead. Okay. So um, this is on the terms of the dragon and it's in Genesis 1:20, and uh, this is from the Sefer and Elohim said let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open expanse of heaven and Elohim created great dragons and at every living creature that moves which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and at Every winged fowl after his kind, and Elohim saw that it was good. And Elohim blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So it says right there in Genesis that Yahuwah, our Elohim, created dragons on the fifth day. Um, and you know, I, I think you guys caught the part where I talked about the the royal families and a lot of these prominent families in our world have family crests where they have dragons on them, they have unicorns on them. It's because they know that these things were real if they're not still real today, you know, if they're still not around today. And uh, I did say, uh, make a comment on Lilith. I have done a little bit of research on that in the past. And supposedly Lilith uh, was Adam's first wife, and she was created equal, and because of this, she didn't procreate with Adam, and she went her own way in her wickedness, and, um, and then God created uh, Eve from Adam's rib, uh, and, you know... So the story goes. Anyways. Yeah, the, the story of Lilith really does make sense to me in the sense that it, when you tie all the pieces together, and, and that's one of the beautiful things when, you know, like you, you start looking at all these extra biblical books and stuff, and, you know, it's sold to you like, well, that's going to distort and disrupt everything. Actually, it starts building, building this beautiful picture, and it, 
it's once in a while, yes, you will come across text and it's like, no, that that's not that's obviously not correct. The thing is with Lilith is that it, when you read in Jubilees where it says that all Ruachs, all souls were created on the first day before the throne of Yah. All guys, all like uh, there were no according to Jubilees, there were no Ruach that was not created on that day. And um, that, and then, you know, we tie this in and I, I really should go through that paper. I wrote uh, one night on here. It, that's really tied in, in uh second Ezra where, uh, you know, the angel, I think it was Uriel uh, says the quote uh, that the earth is a womb and that, you know, that, that every soul is appointed to its time when it's to be born. And it's, it's this, you know, this birthing process, they all can't be born at once. It has to be this ongoing process. Well, so you have this idea that that Lilith, or even you could say Hava Eve, her goal was to become the mother of humanity, start this process of these souls, of these ruachs being being uh, born in flesh, and yet you have with Lilith, uh, she's like she's like no, I don't want that task, I don't want them, and she goes and creates, she cre- wants to create her own right in her wickedness these demons. And so you see the Ruachs that are to be born through men. And then you see Lilith, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's it really, it's an interesting um, story. And again, I, I'm not saying it is, but I, I, I do find it fascinating. So um, I, I wanted to touch here on prolific asked a question and he says, do you mind expounding on the similarities of revelation 1215 and the mud flood? That was a big eye-opener, as it could mean only portions of Revelation have been filled, and Revelation 20 is being filled simultaneously with other portions of the book. So, I cannot comment on that tonight, because uh, I, I would, if I did so, I would be speaking out of my butt, and I don't want to do that. Um, I do find it really interesting, and this is another thing I was having a conversation with my wife today about, we were discussing, is that in the book of Revelation, and we could all look, we could all kind of think about it in our heads is that everything in there is kind of repeated uh for example there's two mark of the beast when is the first mark of the beast come up i think is it revelation 7 through 9 or something but then it comes up again like in what like revelation 13 14 15 right in there and which is interesting why would he bring it up at one point and then bring it up again right and so people have long commented about the book that it's uh cyclical like it's almost like um uh, you know, it talks about in there the seal that only the lamb can open of a book. And this is like a scroll. So if you can imagine, you know, like, you know, you put your 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 signet ring, your signature on clay, and it binds the, the, the scroll together. The way Revelation seems to be written is that you open up the seal and you enroll it. And then there's another seal. And then you got to break that open and you unroll it again. And then there's another seal and you break that and open it again. And so... This is where I've been trying to hint at with you guys, like when we're coming into this research saying that the millennial kingdom may have fact already happened, it would be foolish, I believe, for me to say, well, then it's all done away with. We don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, it's like, no, wait, hold on a second here. The spirit of Antichrist still exists. So, Right, we got the spirit of Antichrist to deal with today, right? You know, and all these different things. Uh, Mystery Babylon clearly still exists, and we, um, you know, the mystery religions, all that. So we see clearly repeated patterns. Um, we are looking forward to Mystery Babylon being destroyed again, and this is what I want to 
I would be, this is the point where if I go beyond this right here, I will be speaking out of my butt, but I do want to look into Revelation to see if there are repeated patterns that would um, attest to the fact of two events happening. One in around the whereabouts of 70 AD, when, when I think it all went down. Um, and then again today. Uh, are we seeing similar things go down again today? Um, because clearly there are, uh, you know, just clearly there are things that are going down. And um, so hopefully that answers that. And that's as much as I could say at the moment. Revelation, uh, I think I read from, yeah, 1215, where the the water sweeps over the whole earth. That, that's a fascinating passage, guys. It says that the, the dragon is trying to essentially replicate Noah's flood. He's trying to destroy um, the set apart. And it says it goes over like the whole earth. It's like, well, what it, it like, is this literal or is this poetic? Like, what is this? And if it's poetic, then what's the flood poetically <laughs> speaking. And so this is where, like, when we're researching this, we're like, oh my goodness, this, like, the Bible is becoming really literal where there may, you know, there, the, the mud flood. And again, if it's tied up with the release of the watchers and Hasatan, like I think it is, they very likely could have created this event to try to destroy, um, you know, it would have been a judgment from Yah on the top down. But uh, this is where, you know, the earth is conscious, of course, and the earth swallows up this water to stop it. Um, and this might be the the huge event we see all across the world. I don't know. I'm seeing a connection there. Um, so I think it's worth looking into at the very least. I, I, I would tend to think the same way i just read revelation last night <laughs> in a fit of just ah, i gotta read it <laughs> um and 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 thinking about like oh yeah we're post-millennial reign right and there's just like there just doesn't seem like a lot that happens after that it's just everything kind of just wraps up nicely and i'm just thinking to myself like looking at the world as it is now and and everything that's going on we got like the world's on fire you know, we got flood. <laughs> I mean, we got everything going on. <laughs> um, so I was just like, all this stuff is still like happening, right? Like it's all still happening. So I, I wonder if you aren't right. And I was thinking of the mark too. Um, that you know, the mark or the image or whatever it is of the, of the beast. And um, I, I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, because I read an article, like of something that someone wrote recently, where uh, the Roman Catholic Church actually instituted a mark, uh, which was a cross that you put on your forehead to indicate uh, the mark, as well as the Roman Catholics or the Catholics, uh, they do the yeah, whole hand uh, thing with the right hand yeah. and, the, and the forehead. They Ash, touch their forehead. Ash Wednesday too, where they put the the cross on their forehead. Exactly, yeah. and so apparently the Roman Catholic Church historically, uh, back I don't know a couple hundred years ago now, and that would have been on the timeline post-millennial they decreed that anybody who didn't have this mark couldn't buy or sell and had to be and and family members would have to like um like isolate from them uh, and they were like essentially expelled from the roman catholic church's like whole reign thing so they couldn't do a participate in any commerce or anything like that uh, and that's what this article kind of outlined and i was like what happens if the mark is like a repeating thing? Um, that kind of makes sense because that's why, I mean, that would make sense why the cross is so prominent. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it lines up perfectly with that. Well, this guy, 
I don't know if I want to say this. I don't know if you had a chance to read that thing that I linked you know, but uh, you probably didn't because I didn't know that you were going crazy working on this stuff here. But um, he breaks down the Greek letters that John wrote in Revelation. It's not a 666. It's three Greek letters. And the first one means cross. The second one means Christos, but the first one means cross. Or, or the second two mean Christos or can represent um, uh, uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, not not, and that's to be differentiated from Yahusha Hamashiach. Um, so when you look at Jesus and the the Latin origins of of the name Jesus, uh, it, like I think Noel, you've even mentioned this. It means earth pig. It's it literally Satan has rebranded himself. It seems as Jesus Christ and put that in place of Yahusha. And I can't think of a better deception than that. I literally can't. Like that is that is the perfect deception. Back in um, I think it was December of 2019 or the whereabouts, uh, Adam Fink at Peril of the Vineyard put out a <laughs> a Antichrist video, which was probably got him more heat than anything he's ever come out with before. I mean, people were furious and people like uh if you guys know like steven bendenoon like he did a whole like rebuttal against it and you know like just going after him and the the short of it is this that yeah the mark of the beast if you pronounce it it actually says like jesus or something like that it's almost like cheese it's but it's like jesus or something like that and um well it was interesting and what he was saying in the video is that the spirit of antichrist is actually jesus uh, that that you know Yahusha Hamashiach was you know obviously Torah observant. He came you know by the authority of his father, so on and so forth. But this Jesus figure is basically yeah Satan rebranding him into lawlessness. And I think I had made the comment to you that you know I I don't have any problem with the name Jesus. Um, I don't like what the name represents though. I don't like this is why. Um, I don't go out and say things like God. I think of the word God as like, you know, Freemasonry. Um, I don't say God. I say Elohim. I say, uh, I say his name, Yahuwah. Uh, and I say Yahusha HaMashiach. And um, like, I'll go around and wear uh, a t-shirt. Like if I'm working at the gym, it's like, you know, all Hebrew letters and it says Yahuwah. And people will come up to me and they'll be like, is that his name? And I'll be like, what, what are you talking about? Like, and they'll point to my shirt. Like, they'll be like, is that his name? And I'll go, yeah, Yahuwah, the most high. That's his name. And it, it's this is, I don't know what other comparison I can give, but if anyone here recognizes the C.S. Lewis reference, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the first book, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they go to Narnia. And I think the beaver says the name Aslan. And like, they all like, they're like in wonder, like they hear the name Aslan for the first time. But that's what it's like because people have gone their whole lives never hearing Yahuwah. Um, and you know, they just call him the Lord. Right. And so when you actually say to people and you don't talk down to them, you just say, you know, Yahusha, Yahuwah, people are like, they're, they're like, they, people get excited. Like it, it turns some people sour, which is really interesting, but other people, they get really excited. And, um, and so, yeah, anyways, all that say, yeah, I do. I do think that there, there's a, a legitimate truth to um, Jesus uh, being the spirit of the Antichrist, definitely as he's advertised in the church. I mean, you so. got to think, though, that is the ultimate deception, right? 
Yeah. If it's true. I mean, yeah, that would absolutely. be it. I mean, if everybody who's calling on Jesus and God is literally actually calling on Baal and Hasatan, then yes, 100%. They're invoking that spirit without knowing it. That's insane. But see, I, I just... Now, everyone is free to come to their own conclusions. I just want to specify here uh, that I'm not taking the sacred name path. Um, I... When I was a, when I look back at my life, um, I really believe that Yahuwah um, has always been my father, um, that I've always been guided by Yahusha, but I used to know him by another name, Jesus. And I no longer know him by that name, but I, I don't believe saying Jesus is invoking uh, a demon or an or the Antichrist. Um, it's like I said, it's, it's, I don't like what the name represents. Um, but I'm not saying that the name itself invokes a false God. So just, so everyone is clear what I'm saying. Um, but what, you guys, what does the name represent? What does the name represent? I'm, I'm not trying to say that necessarily either. What I am trying to say is that I'd love to hear of anybody who, um, very few who call upon the name of Jesus Christ and are Torah observant and are still searching for truth. It's Precisely. not what the name represents. It's, it's an all-encompassing concept of quote-unquote religion. Yeah, I'm not sure who asked that question. I think it was Copter Pilot. Yeah, what's the name represent? Lawlessness. So... <laughs> Um, if you go to the church, if you look at Christianity, Christianity, the, which comes out of the Christians of Antioch, which that goes down the whole Paul route, but the, the Christianity as a whole and the Roman Catholic Church, one thing the Roman Catholic Church and Christianity all have in common is that the law has been done away with. Now, there are some Christian denominations which will stress, um, you know, that uh, only some portions of the law has been done away with, like the Levitical laws and the purity laws and so on and so forth. But um, that that is what that name represents to me. It represents lawlessness. If I those who worship Jesus in the Christian church celebrate the fact that the curses the the cursed law is done away with that that cursed old religion, and now we are free. We are living in the age of grace, and um, you know. And it's funny. It's like. The goyim and the and and, and 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 you're a gentile. You're not an is. You're not a. Uh, you're not the Yehudim. You're not uh, uh, Israel. Uh, you're a gentile. What's funny is that the gentiles were <laughs> never under the law to begin with. So I always find that a little funny now that I look at it. But yeah, if, so hopefully that answers that. That that is what it represents to me: lawlessness. And who is the spirit of lawlessness? The Antichrist, right? So if someone were to come and tell me that Jesus did away with the law and he doesn't want us to be lawful. They are now telling me, they are now giving me a Jesus of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness. Whereas Yahushua HaMashiach was a man of the law. And we, if we follow him, we are to be obedient to the law of, of Yahuwah, right? He didn't come to undo his father's work. So can hopefully I, um, that. Can I read this quickly from revelation? Uh, I, I hit this last night. Please do. I found it and it kind of stuck out to me. Um, so this is, uh, Revelations 3, 8. It says, I know at your works, behold, I have set before you an open door and no man can shut it for you have little strength and I have guarded at my word and not denied my name. So that, 
I was, and he's referring to the Church of Philadelphia in this case, and you probably know more about what the Church of Philadelphia represents, but um, it just kind of hit me. It was just like, I wonder if this this whole name thing, and, and here, I just see another one here, Revelations 2, 13. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name and have not de denied my belief. Like, he's talking to these churches, and this name thing keeps coming up. It's just like, everybody's all... Well, hallow be thy name. Well, yeah, but Christians are all like, oh, then nothing matters in the name, it's just a translation. It's not. You look up Jesus in Latin, which is apparently what Jesus was first written in, and it does mean earth pig. It, it, that's the etymology of the word. So it's like, it's hard to deny, right? So. I think it's more about the confusion that um, the adversary sows. So he's going to spread that confusion in what his name is. So where the division is sown is who has the right name doesn't matter all he want there because for satan because he's sowed the confusion yeah but here's the other yeah. kicker that really hit me in the head yahushua literally says he says i come and i don't know the verse exactly somebody else probably does but it the ver, uh, it's he says i come and this is paraphrasing slightly i come in the name of my father and so yeah yahushua means yahuwah saves um so he comes literally in his father's name is his father's name is been is embedded in his own, but another will come who you will accept, who will come in his own name, and Jesus does not mean any. Jesus comes. There's no other name by which men can be saved, other than Jesus Christ, and it's it's a brilliant trick. <laughs> like it really is quite brilliant because Jesus doesn't mean that. It's not even a transliteration. It's not anything. If if it was supposed to be transliterated, it would be Joshua, which uh, my name is Josh, but it's not Joshua actually. It's just Josh, so I don't have any bias in this case. But that's what it, that's what you would that was would be transliterated down to is is kind of Joshua. So your your parents just named you Josh. They didn't name you Joshua. Yeah, my mom just named me Josh. I was like, I joked with my mom actually the other day. I said, oh, maybe Yahuwah is gonna add the. <laughs> <laughs> the final bit to my name when my my purpose is fulfilled. it was just josh and josh and that's what i'm i'm always joking around um, well i i love that you know joshua is in my middle name i'm glad my parents gave me that because they they gave me a first name that celebrates you know nimrod's birthday so <laughs> pretty pretty pagan <laughs> yeah you're just a sandwich um so that's just something to think about. I can link the article. Actually, the other weird thing is that I went to link the article in Messenger, uh, Facebook Messenger, to another group, um, and I went to try to send it uh, on Facebook, and um, uh, I couldn't. Um, it just gave me an error. So Facebook is wise to this website where this guy has this article, and uh, they refuse to allow it to be linked, which is interesting. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I find this fascinating because... Um, you know, it's interesting to see that that would be the perfect deception amongst the people. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are Christians who will put Jesus above, 
Elohim, Yahuwah, they'll put Jesus, you know, and and instead of praising the Creator, they praise the Messiah, which, you know, you should praise both, obviously. But as far as putting the Messiah above the Father, I, I've always disagreed with that because it does not say that. And um, people misconstrued that a lot. And um, the the name, though, Jesus, I you know, I've heard both sides of the story, and this has been going on for a long time. Um, and the intentions behind it, if they're good intentions, the name matters not, in my opinion. Now, what it represents... People can, uh, you know, pick that apart and whatnot. But in my opinion, that's that's the way I feel. Now, in Deuteronomy 30, I don't want to misquote it. Let's see if BibleBot can do it for me. Um, see if it brings it all up. Um, no. Okay. So it wants it wants chapter and verse. Oh, I see. Well, in Deuteronomy 30, it it talks about in the in days now when we talk about in days are we talking about the generation of yahusha because i believe that was the in days uh, but we see repeated patterns like there, clearly there is a mass waking up on this earth right now in these later uh, days where people all over this motionless plane their eyes are being uh, as proverbs uh, 2012 says that yah is the one that opens eyes and hearing ears and all across this motionless plane, people's eyes are being woken, they're hearing, and they're turning away from their idols. They are the children of Israel, and they are, it says that they would remember his name. And so there is a truth to this. All over the earth, we are seeing this very moment, people are remembering his name. And the, like, if you guys, if anyone here owns the Sefer, uh, Dr. Stephen Pigeon did that. Like he really started something. It's on fire, and now all of a sudden, like you know, having Bibles that have the names are are all in demand. It's what people want, and so there that that is a fulfillment of Scripture. That there is a connection, I believe, to the children of Israel being scattered all over the earth. We are in in our diaspora right now. We are. Like I started out praying, we're in our dispersion right now because our forefathers rebelled and sinned, and we ourselves were in sin. And as we wake up, cast out our idols, there is a connection between turning back to the Most High and stating and saying his name. So I do think that is important. Just Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe I misspoke there. I didn't mean that it, it's not important. But what I mean is that the intentions behind it, if you mean you're referring to the Most High or to the Messiah in your intentions, then that's what matters. Not that the name doesn't matter, because it absolutely does, and that's why you know most of us have came to this point to where we now know Yahuwah and Yeshua uh, are the names. I fully agree with I that. It, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, go, you know what I think it spins on again? And this is where a lot of the um, other, um, whether it's Gnosticism or Buddhism or other philosophies or religions, is it, in, is it an impersonal God or is it a personal God? And for many of us, when we came to the truth, we realized we're, we're listening to a personal God. And that's where I think a lot of it, um, 
the let's say the difference lies. I mean, and this is why we're coming to knowing his name because it's personal. It's not an impersonal universe. It's not an impersonal God. And this is what we've been kind of um, programmed to believe to where he doesn't exist, doesn't have a name, not important. And as you're saying, Noel, wow, the, it's really coming alive um, that, that, what would you describe it? So, to just so, throw another verse I... out there, <laughs> super quick. Um, Jeremiah okay. 23, 27. I'll just read it and I'll let you uh, jump in, Polly. Sorry. Um, they suppose the dreams that they tell one another to make my people forget my name, just as their fathers forgot my name through the worship of Baal. There you go. Beautiful. I am. Um, I'd just like to state my short story of this last week. Uh, so obviously the people who came to the baptism had no idea about flat earth. And I was like, well, start looking at Joshua chapter 10. I didn't say flat earth or anything like that. I didn't say anything. I didn't preach my theology to them. I just read what Adam sent out. And so, but um, <clears throat> as with any cognitive dissonance that I've had in the past, um, I've always shown the analogy. And I think a couple of you have seen that if I put up one fist and it's the dogma of man or my tradition or my teaching or what I've seen in the catechism of Luther or whatever, I say, this is a dogma of man. And then I put up the other one. Here's the doctrine of Yahuwah. And I say, one of them has to bow to the other. And every time, and as I'm growing, I'm learning how to get rid of the disillusionment of my past training, right? My programming. And this is uh, my struggle this last week, struggle, <clears throat> theological debate, growth pattern this last week. Um, has been this whole idea of the name. Now, I have a personal experience of being late, you know, hands laid on and, and, and prayed over in the name of Jesus Christ and having physical manifestation of a, of a spontaneous remission uh, of, of, you know, of healing. And that was a very rare thing and <clears throat> it was wonderful because I wouldn't be alive today without it. But that was my, and I think there was a lot of grace and mercy from the Father who knew where I was at. And uh, said, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead. But so, all in all, I'm, I'm coming to the point with, with anything, with, with mud flood, with Tartaria, with anything. I'm coming to the point where I look at, and if someone could post this, uh, Dave, uh, Blaze Pascal's Wager, it's simply a picture of four boxes. Um, Pascal's Wager says, basically, once it pops up, you guys can look at it. Um, you have this, this, this box, and it says, well, what would happen if I did believe this? What would happen if I didn't? You know, what would be the, the good and the bad? And just from a mathematical standpoint, logical standpoint, you always have to go back to the most possible scriptural best explanation, sola scriptura. What the word says is explained by the word. So for me, this last week, I started praying to um, Yahuwah and or Yahweh or Yahuwah or whatever however you want to say it, right? Started praying to him through his son's name, Yeshua HaMashiach or whatever you want to say it, right? And now the voices that I heard back haven't changed. I wasn't reborn, reborn. I wasn't, you know, born again into another spirit or whatever. I, I, I still feel the same um, lordship, as, as, as it were, the, the same kingship, as it were, uh, over my heart, over the throne of my heart, over my life, my soul, whatever. And so 
but I think that my mind and my tongue now having being harnessed um, have come into submission and not not agreement yet, not full agreement, but submission to his name. Um, I'm teaching it how to bow, right? I'm teaching my my heart and my, my tongue how to how to say it. So that's just my personal experience. Um, and, and I and I don't know, you know, every week I'm, I'm encountering something new. Uh, especially on this on this Discord channel, uh, something new out out there and something that I'm being you know mind blown over and I'm like wait a minute. I remember Noel came over to my house and said, "Now I'm not a preternist, but I want to tell you about this thing called the millennial reign." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so I've been mulling over that for a long time, and uh, you know I'm not going to give you my conclusions, but but just for the name thing, um, I feel myself transmogrifying again into this new reality of. Pronouncing it differently. Um, and, and yeah, just a comment on that, because uh, that's a that, that was a that was a great testimony, Polly. Um, I've every time I've talked to a Christian about the names, um, they've always brought up the very uh, what I feel is um, defensive pose uh, of saying, and my grandma said this the other day. And, <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh. And I don't know what to say this other than what I said. Uh, she said, so <clears throat> your grandfather, he prayed and he was, you know, he was a Christian and he used the name of Jesus and, and God and Lord. He's going to hell? Like, because my grandfather died a while ago, uh, you know, maybe six or seven years ago. And I said, well, it's not for, like, it's not our, we aren't in a position right now to judge. Like, that comes at another time. So I'm not going to say that someone's going to hell because they use the inappropriate names. Maybe they maybe they didn't know the right thing, and maybe this situation looks different. But I, I posted a verse that says, you know, uh, and we're fam- uh, most of you here, Torah observant, are very familiar with the verses, Matthew 7, 22-23, where Yahushua says, you know, Many will come before me and they'll say, hey, we did all these things, as you note, um, Polly, cast out demons um, and, and healed in, in the name. Um, I think that's literally people who learn the truth because it seems in Scripture you're only really responsible for something once you know the truth. Once you know the truth, then you, you aren't hold to an old standard. You're hold to that new standard. And so people who know the truth, seek the truth, they're going to be searching for the heart. They're going to be searching for the face of Yahuwah. Um, and so they won't stop until they until they find it. Um, so I think that being in a group like this is almost like a condemnation of sorts for people who want to continue to use the old, the, the word, the, the names that Baal has hijacked, because it's, it's a form of being accountable. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the things I can't stand anymore to see the Lord in Scripture. And a lot of you are going to know where I'm going with this, that the Most High has a name, and I believe it's Yahuwah. That is, of course, debated, but uh, it has been removed from Scripture some 7,000 times. I think just in the Old Testament alone. Um, and has been replaced with the Lord. And there's, you know, the the Lord... Um, can be translated to Baal. Uh, some people argue against this, but but the there's if if the translators were being honest, 
the accounts of Elijah <laughs> Eliyahu on Mount uh, Caramel, when he's up there with the, the priest of Baal, and he's basically like, choose the state whom you're going to serve. It, it should read, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, serve the Lord or the Lord. But they don't say that. They say the Lord or Baal. And that's really deceptive. Because, um, and that's where they, they really get you. It's almost like you should be saying, uh, do you serve Baal or Baal? And that's, I can't, I can't tolerate the Lord anymore. I can't see, I, I you know, the, so, yeah. But um, all that to say is that in the closing chapters of Deuteronomy are my, probably some of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I mean, and Moshe is just laying it out there. He's like, you guys, it's up to you to choose the blessing or the curse. And by the way, you will choose the curse. You're going to go in the land. You're not going to be obedient. You're going to be tossed out of the land. But the beautiful part is that, you know, here we find ourselves, we are tossed out of the land. In a post-mud flood sense, um, it's, we are, you know, we're here on this earth right now, and we're not in the camp of Yah because our descendants rebelled, right? We we see that in all the photos. You look at all the photos in the 1800s of people walking around in these, you know, deserted cities, like they're like, you know, oh, what happened, you know? And um, but it says, but Yah says in there, He says that you know, for that future generation when they start to wake up, and they've been scattered all over to the furthest corners of the earth and heaven, and when they start to wake up and they recall his name, they start saying to his name and start, you know, choosing the blessing by keeping the commands. He says that he will be a gracious Elohim. Like what that means is, is that he is. I, I read that I'm like yes. If you know, if you want some grace, there it is. He he will he will give us grace as we are. Children again. He says the the one thing he wants from us is to have circumcised hearts, and that's the key right there. Like I have seen so many people um, in this walk where they say all the right things, they you know they they have all the right words, and they will argue for the right name and you know and and what Sabbath to keep and all these different things, and they do not come across to me like people who have circumcised hearts. They have rotten fruit, and they're yeah. just. And and so that is what Yahuwah wants from us. He wants circumcised hearts. So take this to the Sabbath issue, okay? It says in Ezekiel chapter, I think, 20. It could be Ezekiel 15 or 1520 or 2015. I'm not sure. Uh, it says that this, the mark or the sign of Yah is keeping Sabbath. Well, we have an issue then. If nobody in Torah camp can agree on when the Sabbath is, oh, I'm a seventh day Sabbath keeper. I believe it just so happens to fall on the day we call Saturday. But there are many who keep the lunar Sabbath, which means that if tomorrow's a full moon, it should be Sabbath. I think tomorrow, I think it falls on. I'm not quite sure. But that that's an issue. If uh, the mark of God is keeping Sabbath and we can't agree what day Sabbath is on, um, it means that a lot of us, we could all, if it's the lunar Sabbath, then we're all, if we're seventh day keep, uh, Sabbath keepers, then we're all wrong. Then we don't have the mark of Yah. You see where I'm going with this? And this is where we have to realize that Yah is a gracious uh, father and that what he wants from us is a circumcised heart. If we have, and I, and I don't want to just say, oh, this is all a heart issue because Christians say the same thing. But look, if we 
want to be obedient to the Father, if we want to keep his ways, we have to give, we have to understand that uh, we don't have all the answers. We don't understand all of this. We are literally sheep. Have you guys ever seen sheep? When I was living in Europe, I was fascinated at the fact that you walk up to sheep and um, and they will look at you and they're the most skittish things. They will go, ah, they will just like ran, they, the whole herd will run away, right? They are, we are Sheep are skittish creatures. And um, and what, what the shepherd wants from us is just to follow him, right? That That's it. Like we're trying our best to follow him and be obedient to him. And I really think that if we get some of this stuff wrong, including his name, the pronunciation of his name, because really if we have to pronounce his name, right, I'm screwed because when it came to the division of tongues of Babel, I got the California tongue. Like I can't pronounce anything. When we were living in France, I couldn't pronounce a single French word, right? It was terrible. Uh, I tried so hard. Uh, And my point is, is that like, I know I don't spell Yahuwah correctly. Like, you know what, you, or pronounce it right. Hopefully, everyone gets my um, understanding. I think I'm... it goes. It goes more to the point, which is of which of whose mind are you? And if you're not of of Yahuwah's mind, the alternative we've come to realize. You could say it better than me. So I think it's not that you get the information wrong. Be humble, right? Um, um, accept correction. That's being of the right mind. And that's what's more important. Like you said, are we being obedient to Yah? Yeah, precisely. So, um, one, I, I'm sorry, I've been dominating the conversation here a little bit. But I had, I had a thought. I just kind of wanted to just share it with the group. Um, it's, it's, it's somewhat thought out. Um, so... It was just something that popped in my head last week, and I thought it was interesting. So, um, uh, Satan, Satan, when he fell to Earth, there was like uh, yeah, this lightning um, that happened, uh, as is described, I think, uh, I think in one of the Gospels or something like this. And um, I had thought to myself, we, we know of all these places around Earth that are ancient, but they are, they have like batteries, they have like all kinds of ancient, like technology that's somewhat more advanced than ours but also more ancient than ours that utilizes electricity and we know that the watchers taught um humans these these technologies these different things and i was thinking to myself like what is the what what do i think right now in the world would be the final iteration of technology and of course thinking is artificial intelligence when when technology has is embodied has a body and with the, I don't know if anybody has gone on to this thing about the graphene oxide or the nanite graphene or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's it's like essentially little microchips that are put into you uh, when you go to get cookies from the government. Um, <laughs> and I thought to myself, if 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 like Hasatan and, and technology is actually a, like an embodiment of evil, um, and and Hasatan like like feeds that because it's like this electricity it was very ethereal the whole thinking but the final iteration of his form would be artificial intelligence and technology being the like the the venue for that and so therefore inserting technology into ourselves or incorporating into ourselves would be taking on the image of satan it was just a thought that i had as you can see not well fleshed out but getting there 
he's corrupting the temple and the temple is uh, us. And that's whether it's through um, minds, uh, our hearts, our DNA. Uh, he's messing with God's creation. And that's it. it it's, as mo it's, it's not so much what's happening on the outside of us. That's why they're talking about implantables. Because that's where that's the 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 real um, battleground. Yeah, he's polluting mankind. Yeah, um, I, I I seem to recall uh, Will Goodrich, the Truth is Change of the Fiction. That was his big uh, push with his channel. That you know everything is leading towards you know. AI and the you know the fulfillment of Satan literally embodying technology and it's a fascinating thought and I I do I do agree that's where this is all going. However, I I sometimes think about this that we had this discussion last week about the cookies, right? And is the cookies the cookies? <laughs> the cookies. Of, yeah, is it the is it you know the cookie monster? Uh, you know the cookie of the beast. And th I was thinking about this. This I was thinking. <laughs> Well, I was I'm thinking. Sorry, about... it's just funny. The cookies and the cookie monster, cookie. Well, that was the that was the most innocent name we could come up with at the time, so it kind of stuck. So, I was thinking about this this week, and the thing is about deception, is that, you know, you always, you know, they're telling us about things they're going to be doing fifty years from now, right? They're telling us this agenda that's twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years down the line, and. You're making me laugh because okay, you put Cookie Monster in there. That's just terrible. Um, and that that in itself may be the deception, right? Like like if I could prove to you uh, that everything is going to end two years from now, but artificial intelligence won't reach its fulfillment till ten years from now. Right there, you could deceive the 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 nations by saying, "Oh, this this is not the cookie. This isn't it." Clearly, because we haven't reached that pinnacle yet, right? And this is where they can trick you. Um, does that make any sense? Like, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, is that obviously I have no clue how far this is going to go. Um, but all yes, of us, is, is it upon us now or are they been lying? Like, yeah, it's yeah. going to happen in 20, 30 years when it's already upon us. Yeah. Which, guys, which we could bring it to this guys, is AI sentient, sentient or not right now. Guys, it's going it's not a question of AI. It's a question of Satan. Yeah. Guys, according to agenda 2030, uh, we've got like three years left and it's over. Like by 2025, people are dying left and right. It's by 2030, they want to bring down those numbers to the Georgia Guidestones. How many years away is that? That's nine, eight years from now. It's, it's happening. I remember that was, that was the agenda 2030 was its second name. The original name was 2021, 2021, wasn't it? The yeah. agenda 2021. Which is, I think they're both separate agendas, actually. But is it a ruse? Uh, yeah, that's what Noel's Noel's pointing at. You have to think who's who's in power right now. Hasatan. What's his goal? His goal is to attack. Why would he reduce? He's the on a short string, though. He's on a short leash. But why would he reduce? He's on the a short leash. By f to to five hundred million, if he could have a. A billion, two billion, ten, like five billion strong army. I think that this, I think it's possible that this death thing is a ruse and that these people are going to become like 
zombies. Yeah, they're going to be AI, AI controlled hive mind zombies. Yeah, well, some will die, hundred percent. Like many will die, but who's heard of this, or at least pondered this? How many people are really here? Uh, Yes, the true population of the Earth. No, didn't you write an article about that? No, but I've insinuated many times that I think uh, we're much lower than those numbers. I mean, you could just prove it by China alone. China is clearly lying about their numbers. And you when you, you look at all these, I think Kent Hovind back in the 90s, uh, I, I thought he said Florida. Someone was telling me the other day he said Texas. But uh, Kent Hovind back in the 90s was, you know, he was the only guy out there back in the 90s talking about Agenda 21, which is... Uh, now, you know, what we call Agenda 2030. But he was like, if you took everybody on the earth and moved them into the state of, take your pick, Florida or Texas, which is certainly different. He said you could fit everybody and still have plenty of breathing room uh, just in that state alone. And the rest of the earth is vacant. So when you go to these like major cities all over the earth, uh, South America, Africa, other places, When you're in the middle of a city, it feels like the whole earth is congested and you believe this lie. But then you step out of those cities and it's like you're in no man's land. You're just in the in ruins, you know, like just the wilderness and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, the earth is clearly not as populated as they. And I think that they jack up the numbers to help really um, push the need for their agenda. Global warming. Right. The vaccines, all these things like they need. They need us to believe that we're over populated to put that fear in us and you know um in in this uh but the thing is i'd like to point out and this is just a theory on my part um but the question is is does satan want to kill people or not i think he does and you would have to ask the question well why why would he want to do that well in my opinion it's a numbers game when when Cain killed Abel, one of the interesting things that Yahuwah says in the in the Hebrew, it's there. He when he when he says, "Where is thy brother?" The language actually seems to imply that Yahuwah was. Uh, he's not just looking for Abel; he's looking for all the people that were expected to come from Abel. That in killing off Abel, he has now murdered and killed off all the descendants that were expected. Right, this whole messianic line that he had to restart again with Seth. Adam and Eve had to restart again with Seth, um, and so it's a numbers game. That the reason why he wants to abort so many babies all through history, just kill the babies, kill them, kill them, kill them, is because he's trying to slow down the process of redemption. Um, the more, the more, uh, the more he can kill at that young age, the less reproduce and less less population growth, less people that have become set apart. Uh, less people to fill the vacancies in the kingdom. I, I do believe there's a number of vacancies that are being filled. Uh, Second Ezra seems to say so, that once these souls are all born, then finally history can be fulfilled. And so I think he's trying to delay the process as much as possible. He knows it's coming. He knows his day is coming and it's short. And so that I do believe he wants to kill people off. Uh, that's yeah, that's beautiful. You said you shared that. Because... That's why there's, in one way, so many people. In one way, if we believe the population numbers, the reason is what you just shared. That that's Yahuwah bringing ev- bringing everyone here that needs to to be here, and then again, what is um, 
the enemy. That's his basically thing. Bring anybody down that he can with him. Robert, are you going to say something, Rob? Oh, I, I was just uh, supporting that, that, you know, by him eliminating the numbers, it gives him more time. Yeah. Well, guys, it's, it is 1130 and we could keep talking all night and I'm fine to stay on tonight. Um, but I thought um, maybe it, for those who do have to work in the morning and get up and I just want to be sensitive to everyone's time. I know how precious it is. I'm always so grateful that you guys all want to come in here and just talk. And I, I, I you know, I love talking with you guys, but um, would someone like to just close in prayer and then we could officially end this and then you guys can, uh, we could all continue talking beyond that. Does anyone want to close in prayer? I can. I can close. Polly, you oh. got it? Polly, you oh, got yeah. it. Okay. All right. I'll go ahead and turn my volume down. Um, Father, you who we are so humbled that we're still here. We've got two eyes and two legs and fingers and hands and toes and we're just so grateful for everything that we have that we forget about. And the, this wonderful technology that you've given us to, to talk to each other. And, uh, you know, we're so silly and we're just, we are sheep. And, but we want to hear your voice ever so clearly and, and, and more loudly than we do. Help us to filter out the things that, that block that. Help us to open up all the little dark corners in our, in our, in our house of our heart and let you in. Let the sun shine into those dark corners, and we ask that your Ruach Hokadesh would sweep it away. Give us grace, give us peace, give us tranquility, give us give us love, charity for all men, and give us wisdom so that we don't sow seeds and you know of silliness. Help us to understand love and not foolish altruism. Give us our daily bread because you're so wonderful and so good that you give us bread and not stones. We thank you so much for everything you do for us, for you're worthy. You are holy, holy, holy. We thank you so much. Bless everybody here. Take care of their families. And, uh, yeah, help us to wake up in the morning and declare your word. Amen. Amen. All right, all men. Um, I'm going to stay on later. I'm going to stay on later tonight and talk to anybody, uh, converse with anyone who wants to. But for everyone who needs to go, shalom. And um, we'll do this again next week.